Hi, I'm John Coe, and welcome to Icons of DC Area Real Estate, a one-on-one interview show highlighting the backgrounds and career trajectory of leading luminaries in the Washington, D.C. area real estate market. The purpose of the show is to highlight their backgrounds and their experiences and some interesting stories about their current business as well as their past, and uh, to cite some things that you might take away, both from educational standpoint as well as lessons learned in the industry, and some amusing and sometimes interesting background stories. So I'm hoping that you will enjoy the show. Before I introduce my guest for this episode, I want to share some information about Co-Enterprises, my company. It serves income-producing real estate market participants through four distinct platforms. First, I advise early-stage real estate companies on securing project financing and on forming and executing operating and financial strategy. My current clients include Brick Lane, a multifamily investment and development firm who began in D.C. and has expanded to the Southeast U.S., with many acquisitions and projects, and One Circle Co., an early-stage multifamily developer and investor in Boston who was nearing their first development project. Two, career counseling for early and mid-career real estate professionals with a program approach, including two one-hour sessions and follow-up six-months progress reports. My clients range from recent college graduates to mid-career executives who are contemplating change. And three, of course, this podcast, which now, with now 58 episodes, sharing knowledge and insights of market leaders. I want to give a special shout out to my associate on this effort, Colin Madden, who provides ProScript perspective and marketing assistance to produce the podcast. And finally, for deriving from the podcast listener base, and my experience as a ULI mentor, Colin and I initiated the iconic journey in CRE, a community of young professionals from 22 to 40 years old who participate and contribute to online and live meetings, property tours, mastermind groups, book readings, and career resources. In summary, Co-Enterprise's mission is to motivate and guide high-achieving individuals and young companies to get the results they want, and in doing so, to elevate the already D.C. area real estate community. To learn more, click on my website, coenterprises.com, or reach out to me at john at coenterprises.com to learn about any of these services. Thank you for listening. Thank you for joining me for another episode of Icons of D.C. Area Real Estate. My guest today is Yolanda Cole. Yolanda is the senior partner at Hickok Cole, architectural firm in the city. She and her partner, Mike Hickok, formed the firm about 20 years ago. And she's built it into one of the leading firms in the city. They are doing some very interesting projects, including the American Geophysical Union building we talk about, which is the first net zero office building in the city. Yolanda grew up in Ohio. She went to school at Ohio State for music and then shifted to architecture over to Cincinnati, or Cincinnati, then moved to New York as, a, as an intern and worked at, at Confederson Fox, which is a leading firm and built, was involved in large structures. She talks about a project in Australia she was worked on. Then she decided to go into academics for a while while she had her first child 
and went to Lehigh University, then shifted over to back to architecture in Washington. She came to D.C. working for Kaiskan in Florence, big firm here. Was then approached on another opportunity for an interior design firm. She built that practice up. She then met her current partner, Mike Hickok, and they merged and formed their firm. She enjoys the creative process, and she talks about how she has innovated as a firm and how they compete amongst other firms. She talks about the philosophy of architecture. I bring up an article about taste, and we discuss that. We talk about themes of today's architecture. We also talk about hiring and how she builds a firm, what she's looking for, how she recruits, how she counsels people, how she leads. And then she talks about passion, which I think is what you need to be both a leader and an architect. So without further ado, here's my wide-ranging conversation with Yolanda Cole. So Yolanda Cole, welcome to Icons of DC Area Real Estate. Thank you for joining me. Thank you for having me. That's great. So what is your current role and how does it complement your partner, Mike Hickok's role at the firm at Hickok Cole? Well, my role or my title is senior principal. I would say what's unique about my partnership with Mike Hickok is that rather than the two of us having each our own realms within the firm, we both do all those things together. And this is not common in the, in the architecture field. In, in most partners, and usually there's more than two, but divide and conquer. So someone might be focusing on the management of the firm or the business development aspects of the firm or the design or you know any you know, strategic direction of the firm. But I would say we, are, we have a similar set of skills and we do all of those things and we basically do them together. So the, the, the advantage of that, and this is not like we decided to, do this for some strategic reason, it's just the way we, we happen to do it, is that it, it prevents what often happens in, in partnerships where there are territory or your clients and my clients, mm -hmm. and, you know, and it, it also presents a united front to the firm at large. So we are very rarely misaligned, I would say, in, in things that we want to do. We might be on a spectrum, I might be here to the left, you might be here to the right, and we might not be in exactly the same place, but we, we always talk, determine what the right place is, and then we communicate that outward to the firm. Mm -hmm. So it's, we feel that's, that's really important, and we hope that our next generation is going to be able to, to come to, the, to those ways. It'll be different. Now, I assume that you have strengths that he doesn't have, and he has strengths you don't have. So does that complement well as far as your, and you look at each other when something comes up? That's more your baby than mine. <laughs> I would say that's <laughs> probably true. He is the he is more the people person. I'm probably the tough one around the house. <laughs> I would say I I expect a lot of people. Maybe demand a lot of people. I want to see people perform. I want to see them do well. I'm happy to help them do that. I think Mike's a little more on the feeling side of things and more on the thinking side of things, if you, if you will. Interesting. It's probably a reversal of what you might imagine. <laughs> Okay, um, we should explore that more. Yeah, maybe so. So how does this collaboration help you and the firm? I mean, what if it was just you alone or just him alone? What, I mean, why was why is it a, a partnership like that? Why not just, you know, one being the senior leader and the other one just kind of letting yeah, the other one go? Yeah, that would be hard. I mean, I think you need a buddy. I think you need somebody to bounce off of because, you know, 
we all might think that we're right and what we think and how we might do it, but it's always good to hear somebody else's opinion, right? Or or have another angle to it. So we depend on each other. That so way. why not, a, why not a third then or four? Yeah, you could. You can't. It becomes a little more difficult. Both of us have had partners where I've, I've had two partners and there was a three, threesome at the top. And what happens then is you, you get triangulations. And so sometimes these two are together and then these two are together. That's okay if it switches around, but if it becomes a two against one or a three against two, you know, on a regular basis, mm-hmm. then, you, then you start to get some, some you know, camps, I guess you will. So I think, you know, you have to work hard for that not to happen. Mm-hmm. And you have to choose your partners wisely. Understood. <laughs> because architecture has timeless aspects to it, yet must adapt to change. Do you, you think the COVID-19 crisis will overlay secular changes in the industry? Office space seems to be the most susceptible to change. However, there are other indicators, or are there other indicators you've witnessed and believe will have lasting impact? Well, I think we have, you know, experienced something like nothing else, right? I've been through lots of recessions and other kinds of things in my career, but this is a totally different thing. This is something that comes from the outside that, that makes us incredibly vulnerable, you know, as, as human beings. And so I think as we come out of this, there's going to be more emphasis on, on wellness, not just physical wellness, but mental health wellness. Mm-hmm. There's, there's always been talk about work-life balance, which we can discuss. I've never been balanced, but <laughs> I'm not sure it really exists. But I think that people will, will continue to want to work remotely, at least in part. So, you know, our policy is a, a minimum of three days a week in the office with a flexible time. In other words, you can you can come late or you can come early as long as you're here or available to, during core hours from 10 to 4. So we're, we're flexible within a zone, I guess you might say, because we still feel it's really important for people to be with other people. Ultimately, while right now we're in this, still in this fear zone and people got used to not having to commute or have to get dressed up or you can, you know, get your laundry done in the middle of the day and, you know, and, and mix that up with work at late at night, if you want. All that has has benefits to people in being able to do heads down work. But in a creative field, we have to be in the room with people somehow, some way to be able to do what we do. You can't do it on Zoom. I don't think so. I really don't. It's possible. We did it. We have been doing it. There are all kinds of electronic, you know, and software tools that we've been able to use during this process, but I can tell you in the first week that I came back, I wandered by someone's desk and saw something on their screen that I had never seen before because I hadn't had a Zoom appointment with that person in order to see what they were doing, right? Mm-hmm. And, you know, it was a new project. And so I got to sit down and I said, well, show me what, you know, tell me about this. What are you doing? Let's talk about it. That interchange would never occur in, in the Zoom world where you have to, you know, make your appointments for every chat that you make. And you can do a lot, but I don't can do it all. So I guess that we're going to be in a combined or hybrid world. And even the hybrid world is going to be tough for a while. I think people will still have setups at home. We have all on laptops. We converted to, to totally mobile so that people can, you know, take their, take their machines back and forth. We'll see. Uh, you can ask me in another couple of months, uh, you know, once people get, <laughs> all get back into the office. But I think it's important. Well, I'd like later on in our conversation, I'd like to dive into the design aspects mm-hmm. of yep. what you're thinking about and what your clients are telling you, because it's a real open 
question right now, it seems, yes. especially in the office environment, it seems to. But I'm interested in the other environments as well as the other things you're seeing. Mm -hmm. So now let's turn the page back to your to your origins, Yolanda. Can you tell me a little bit about where you grew up and what your early influences were and your parents a little bit? Well, I was born and raised in a tiny town in southern Ohio called Waverly, so about 5,000 people. It was a post-war boom town that had at one time been on the Erie Canal, but the canal was long gone. So it was a historic little town that you know, went by the wayside and then experienced a boom after the war because there was a, a factory outside of the town that manufactured a certain isotope of uranium. Get that wow. in this teeny little town, right? My father was an accountant and an attorney. And he had his own business, so he had his business out of a out of a house that was next to the jail, <laughs> which was next to the courthouse <laughs> on uh, on one of the main streets in town. My mother was a home economics teacher, so she was teaching in a high school in a rural area in in this southern Ohio town. So over time, though, my mother was recruited to the state vocational education department and. At the end of her career, she was the assistant state director of vocational education in the state of Ohio. So she kind of went from this very small rural, and she was born in a rural rural farm town, to, to, to high up in, in state government during the period of time when I was growing up. Mm -hmm. So did you move to Columbus then at that yes, point? Yes, moved to Columbus when I was around seven, but we had houses in both locations. So mm -hmm. my father's business was still in the town, way below oh. my my yeah, and we traveled back and forth for years. And, and So neither of your parents were creative, quote-unquote, people. So where did the creative spark start with you? Well, I would say my mother has a, is a creative person. You know, she used that creativity within, within education, I guess you'd say. She did all kinds of fun things when I was, when I was a kid. So I'd say that she is creative, but she wasn't in, in a directly creative field. Profession. Yeah, profession, the, the way I was. Sure. came to be. But where it comes from, you know, you, you wonder, you don't know necessarily. But my father, for reasons I still don't know, was a partner and owner in a music store. Really? When I was a kid. Now, he knew nothing about music, so <laughs> I don't know what happened. But it was called Cold Music, and it was in Chillicothe, Ohio. And at the time, I had a babysitter, because my mother worked, right, who played piccolo in the marching band and really? you know, in the high school that was that was right next to our house, basically. So I first saw piccolo because she had it with her. And one day, my father brought home a flute from the music store. Whoa. So What, you were like six years old? Yeah, something years? Like, yeah, yeah, probably. And then later, when we moved to well, I got a piano, and so I took piano lessons for a number of years as well. But over time, you know, I was playing both. Over time, I... I gravitated toward toward the flute. So I a flute it. is a hard instrument to play. It is. From what and I've there's seen. there's lots of them. They're everywhere. <laughs> there are a lot of flutists in the world. <laughs> <laughs> it's easy to carry around. I guess that's the, yeah, that's mm -hmm. the good thing about but it. But it must have obviously, when you started, because you became a major in it, in music. Mm -hmm. So what was it about it that just really got you going compared to other academic pursuits at the time? You know, that's hard to, you know, it's not like when you're when you're seven or eight or 10, you know, you're not really thinking about, okay, this is what I'm going to do with my but life. But as far as, you know, yeah. other, you know, going out to play, you know, mm -hmm. kick the ball or mm -hmm. do something with kids, you were probably focused on music or at least had yes. more interest in music. Yeah, than, I'm more of a cerebral type anyway. <laughs> so, you know, kind of internal, I guess. I'm an only child too. So there's kind of this... Uh, 
it's an aloneness, but it's not a sad aloneness. I mean, people think, oh, you're an only child, that's really sad, but it's not. You know, if you're not, if you're if you're one of them, you are who you are. And so you spend a lot of time with yourself, right? And you're okay with spending a lot of time with yourself and things like music or writing, because I, I did writing for a while too in my adulthood. Those kind of endeavors are, you know, something you're doing. But the great thing about music is that you're taking that and you're doing it with others, right? So of course. being able to be play in a group with others and do this thing together is really a really unique experience. I suppose dance, theater, performing types arts are like that, where you play your part into, into, mm-hmm. into a larger whole. And then the whole is an organism in itself that that you you know you can feel. You can feel and sure. you're all doing this thing together. It's pretty remarkable. So when you learned it, did you did you learn it individually or in a collaborative environment like a band of some sort? Band. You know, at the time I think the the I was very fortunate to have very strong art music programs in public schools in that Ohio. Helps. And this is before a lot of that stuff got squeezed out, right? And so we had strong choral programs, and so I did that. And band, I learned certainly my instrument in band, although I'd started prior to the age that you would be in band. I took private lessons, both in piano and over the years. And so I played in a concert band and orchestra, marching band during the high school years. Mm-hmm. And so all through my school was just part of, you know, the curriculum for me, mm-hmm. which was really great. And what about art? When did that kind of enter into the equation? Well, I guess I think of it in terms of making things. I was always making things. My mother being in home economics, I knew how to sew from very young. Oh, well, so I made true. lots of things. That's I, a made, good I made clothes. That's I, made, a good I, know, I did macrame. I did embroidery. I did, first I grew up in the embroidered jeans era, and I was pretty good at that. Did you do anything structurally at all? I mean, I would make us like sculptures out of, oh, you, did. you know, plexiglass that you melt and cut and twist and do things with. And, uh-huh. um, wood made all these. Like decoupage wood boxes. Yeah. And, so all the li- layers of, of, of right, and images yeah, and right. poetry or whatever that would you know, pull together to do that. Jewelry and jewelry make. I sort of experimented with lots of different kinds of things. I took um, certainly art classes in school and I took some art at the college level. Mm-hmm. So I think it was, I guess the act of making is really interesting. And Did you ever great. compose music? Not really. I mean, we had to take, in college, we would take composition Music classes composition. As, as, a, as a way of understanding composition and structure and all of that. I mean, we had to do little things, but that wasn't, that wasn't actually my strength, I would say. <laughs> <laughs> so you went to Ohio State University. Did you play in the band there, the marching band, which is a famous band? It is a famous band, but it's a brass band. It's all brass band. And really? I guess, oh, I thought they had And at too. the time, it was all male. So I playing the flute, I wouldn't have been in it anyway. And I think it was probably while I was there that that ceiling was broken and they started to admit women in, into the... Kind of like what I was telling you earlier about, about taking drafting and shop in high school. That did not happen. It didn't exist for women and young girls at the time. As well as, so as well as our athletics, only very limited for athletics, exactly. too. Exactly. Title IX era. Yeah. So, and then 
while you were at, at, in college, you pivoted from music into architecture. So talk about that pivot. Well, that's something people ask a lot. Is it a pivot? It was probably an about phase. <laughs> I was actually considering going to graduate school in music because my original goal as, as a musician was to teach college flute. So I was in music education with a concentration in flute. So I wanted to teach college flute in which you could also perform. Many Most colleges have faculty you know, ensembles and they, they perform and play sure. um, in that environment as well as doing, doing the teaching. So that was, that was the picture that I had for my career at that time. I quickly began to realize that somebody has to pretty much retire or die out of a position and the number of positions there are in colleges and music schools around the country are few and they might be in far off places that you may or may not want to live. <laughs> well, did you think about expanding to other I mean, like being orchestra, like a conductor, doing other things other than just flute. No, no. Teaching and, and flute were where I, where I was. I would say to be in performance is even more difficult if you were trying to be a, a professional flautist. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Because there's, there's just so many flutists. I mean, of, of the many interest instruments that there are, flute is probably one of the most Well, popular. piccolo, of course, is a little bit of an offshoot of that, right? It is. It is. And very hard. It's difficult on your ears. <laughs> 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 Apparently, a lot of piccolo players have problems with their hearing. <laughs> but, but so, no, that really wasn't my goal. And having come from sort of family of educators on my mother's side, the music right. education piece was part of, you know, part of what the background was. So, well, like I think a lot of young people, you don't necessarily know where you're headed no. until, until it kind of slaps you in the face and you go, okay, now I have to actually decide what I'm going to do here. How am I going to make So it you're what, like a junior in college at the time you made that um, shift? Well, no, I was probably, because I was actually starting to look at graduate schools at that, okay. at that point. And I think my teacher at the time, her contract was not renewed at Ohio State because of the quibble with the orchestral director, I guess, you know, stuff that was political and and didn't seem to have much to do with, you know, her her quality as a as a teacher and a player who I had a lot of respect for. So she ended up going very far away and, and teaching in a small college in Texas. And so that was like, oh, you know, if that could happen to her, that could happen to me. And I felt, I guess a piece of it is wanting to have a little more control over your destiny, maybe. Looking back, I could say that. Whether I thought of it that way at the time, I don't know. So I decided I was just going to do something else. Just and mm-hmm. I can't tell you the day it happened or how it happened, but there was you know some kind of an epiphany, <laughs> and I decided I was going to be an architect. And it's really hard to say how that came into my. I mean, had build, buildings interested you? I mean, what what was it that you know? Well, a couple of things that I can point to that. Probably had something to do with it. When I was about 12 years old, my parents built a house. So in Waverly, in this small town, there was a man-made lake with a housing development uh, mm-hmm. around it. And so they decided to move from in town to, to the house. And I was really fascinated for whatever reason with all the plans. And so we were, this was plan book era. We didn't hire an architect to do sure. this, right? You'd find a plan and you, you know, find a builder and you do that. So I was totally into it. I can remember riding my bike down to the you know, store downtown where they had plan books. And just, you know, being, I, I don't know. I can't tell you why, but I was really into it. I watched the house get built. My parents actually let me do tile patterns in the bathrooms at 12, which 
kind of blows my mind, but <laughs> they let me do it. And so I think, you know, there must have been a spark there, right? You know, seeing, sure. seeing that building in that, in that process. I can also recall a childhood friend. She was a friend of the family. They lived in Dayton, Ohio, and she was my age. Her father were friends of my parents. He was an architect. And that's the only other architect I ever met. Yeah, human being architect that I had ever met. Mm-hmm. And I remember that they had a very cool, you know, 60s style house with all the, the latest furnishings. And it was, you know, ran, that was the mm-hmm. era of the ranch. Oh, of course. And yeah, of sure. And I remember seeing his office, you know, with the drawing tables and all of that stuff. So maybe, maybe there's something, you know, mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. at least I had a picture of what an architect sure. is other than Mr. Ed on television or the Brady Bunch, right? So I don't know. Sometimes you don't necessarily yeah. know mm-hmm. where it comes from. So then why you went to Cincinnati? Yes. So why there? Well, my parents had funded my musical education. And when I told told them I was going to go to architecture school, and my dad said, that's great. This one's on you. Yeah. <laughs> and so I had to cobble together some loans. And Cincinnati is a co-op program, meaning that after it's a six-year professional degree program, and after your second year, you can start to work. Every It was a quarter system, and every other quarter you could go and get a job anywhere you could find a job and they had ways of helping you do that. And so you were learning, getting paid, and also have so a scholarship. They yeah. gave a scholarship, mm-hmm. they had loans, and then also I was able to work. And I put my two quarters together. Instead of having them separated, I would cobble on summer with the quarter the last quarter mm-hmm. so that, that period of time was a bigger chunk of time, six mm-hmm. months. And being an older student, somebody who already had a degree they were much more flexible with, with how I wanted to, to do that. So mm-hmm. getting big chunks of time where I could actually spend time in, a, in an office and learn on the job, I guess you'd say. Cool. That was a great experience. And we still have, we actually recruit students here from the University of Cincinnati. Would you encourage that kind of education for architecture, you know, across the board or in different schools have different ways of doing it? Yeah. I'm curious. Well, I think it was really good. For me, it was really good. As I said, you know, I was I was in a different stage, you know, um, mm-hmm. of my career. I've already been through a college experience, if you will. I think being on this side, having someone who have real work experience makes a huge difference. And when I went to graduate school, Columbia, which I guess we'll get to here in a minute, having had that real world, world experience actually made me a better graduate school student as well. So I think being in an office and really understanding what it is, what architecture is, especially if you're in the commercial world, you're working in teams, you know, you're, you're not at the studio making your design, your vision all by yourself, you know, and it's all yours, you know, which is the way architecture had been taught that, that you're the artist and you alone make this, you know, make this thing or space. But in reality, it takes lots of people to, to design and build a building. It takes leadership and design, but it takes a lot of different people with a lot of different skills to do these things. And the sooner people understand and see that uh, and understand that there are a lot of many paths that you can take within right. the architecture profession, I right. think the better. Yeah. Well, it's interesting. You you had a uh, four-year degree in music, more or less. <laughs> then you go into a six-year degree, yep. which I guess was an undergraduate program again, right? Yes. Like a second undergraduate degree. And then you go to a master's <laughs> program, right? So, well, so in essence, you had ten. Yeah, <laughs> ten that's a years. lot of education. And a lot of college loans, but yeah, 
I would say when you go to architecture school, in order to, there are different kinds of programs. There's arts, arts programs and science programs and professional and non-professional degrees. And so typically you can't get through architecture school in less than five years. Five, yeah. So having none, not known anything about architecture, I could have gone directly to graduate school, but that would have felt like a total leap of faith. And because of the co-op program and Cincinnati having a very good reputation, I decided to go that route. Now, I went four years of that at Cincinnati, and I worked in Cincinnati, I worked in Chicago, and then I went to New York City, and I didn't go back. So, I stayed in New York and transferred into graduate school at Columbia University and worked at Cone Pedersen Fox. So, did you get the, the, the Cone Pedersen job while you were at Cincinnati? Yes. And so, they, that was what why you went to New York City right, then, right? right. Right. They, Cincinnati had like I don't know, a Rolodex, you might say, of, of companies that participated in their co-op program. Now, you had to get the job. You had to still get the job on your own. And so I did get an internship there. Was that I had never of, been to New York. I yeah. took my suitcase and my flute and I went to New York. <laughs> Was that one of the most <laughs> thrilling experiences of your oh, life? Yeah. yeah. To oh, my, go my, to New York the first time? Absolutely. Yeah. And, Parents were aghast and, oh, it's going to be so scary there and all that. And, you know, when you're 24, I guess it's so Oh, it's exciting. No, I didn't think of it that way at all. It was fabulous. And I love New York to this day. And it was a great experience. And, you you know, you had the, I guess, the, the, the help of the university. You know, they had connected you to people who could find housing. You know, you had to find it yourself. But, you know, you were in a group of people who were all in this kind of same situation where you're trying to go to this new place, new job and find a place to, to live at the same time. So I stayed there for the next decade, and I worked the whole time I was in graduate school, you know, off and on. And, now, did KPF you know, help you with graduate school there, as far as the cost of that, or no. did you? No. See? <laughs> no. <laughs> so how did you, um, how did you had, manage yeah, that? I had scholarship, and I had, had some financial aid, and I had loans. So through that whole time, you know, it was kind of like a lot of, Young people today, you kind of have to get all pieces and parts and cobble together the financial aspects to 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 go there. And it took a while to pay it off, but I mean, mm-hmm. it's worth it. Yeah. So, what what a part of the of the Columbia education was more? I don't know. Refining to your educational balance was re- relative to what you had from from Cincinnati. I'm just out of curiosity. Well, when you're in a graduate program, you're already at some higher academic place, I guess, because you're in, you're you're with a lot of people who've already had a degree, like I had. You know, you're older. You probably had some, not a lot, but maybe some experience in the world. And the program is is rigorous from a historical perspective. We studied a lot of a lot of history. They, the faculty, are, you know, are very well known and well established. You know, in the in the profession, many of them are practitioners that also. That also teach. So I was lucky to be, you know, exposed to people like Bob Stern and Stephen Hall and Zaha Hadid even during during my graduate school time, which you know you couldn't necessarily have other places, I guess. It's it pretty pretty great. That's great. So so then you were at KPF and you were there for you said 10 years. So mm-hmm. so two years of graduate school and then eight more years professionally, and then you I think you went on to Australia for one of your projects. So talk about that a little bit. Yes, that was toward uh, the end. I guess I would say I was working and going in, going to school simultaneously. So it was kind of this flow of, of, of both during that whole period of time. 
And in 1988, I had the opportunity to work on a mixed-use high-rise, so a million point two million square foot um, yeah. uh, office building with a shopping mall in the, in the in the base of it, and a and a restaurant at the top. Was that Westfield so, your client, or who was your client there? Well, the original client was Alan Bond, and so he's he's. Australian entrepreneur. Mm -hmm. uh, during the project, he was actually put in jail, and oh my <laughs> and it was purchased by the <laughs> Japanese company. <laughs> <laughs> wow. So that was kind of wild, but he was a character. That guy, he was from, he was actually English. He had been a, a, a sign painter and moved to Australia in the wild days and lived in Perth, which is kind of the wild west of Australia at least at that time. So he was quite a guy, and he became a you know heavy in real estate but he was cross collateralizing his properties to get financing for the next one and eventually got caught up in mm -hmm. all of that mm -hmm. but that was something yeah and the, but that was a, just a really wonderful experience we designed through design development in new york and then took a team over to sydney australia we were partnered with a local firm there that, we, that was the architect of record and so we took it through construction documents and well into construction over a couple of years during that period so it was, it was, were you the lead on it? Or? I was the designer on the project. There, there were other senior designers, of course, at the you know at New York above me. But yeah, there were a team of probably six people. So other people rotated in and out during that period of time too. Coming over was that your largest project to date at that moment? Uh, as far yes. as yeah, I assume you worked on large projects in New York, though. I imagine yeah, right? most of the stuff that I worked on was pretty large scale. Mm -hmm. I so still want to do one that's tall around here, though. <laughs> well, unfortunately, the district law doesn't require no, that. No, but you go to Northern Virginia, certainly. Yes. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So you came back from Australia, I guess, back to New York, I guess. And then and then what? Then yes, what uh, bought a house out on the Delaware River in the country. This is late after you left KPF? Or? Uh, well, I, I came back. I got pregnant, so with my daughter, and decided to bought a house on the Delaware River, but still had this shoebox that we lived in in New York. So we, we lived in a in a 350-square-foot studio for 10 years. Wow. Well, you know, and so when the micro-unit thing came up here, I just, you know, the New Yorkers are like, ah, we've been doing that for decades. <laughs> <laughs> so we had a year, you know, the, the apartment in New York and then bought this house out on the river and it was this old stone house from the 1700s and wow. eventually we renovated it and, and all of that so i ended up moving there moving out there to teach at lehigh university as an adjunct professor doing some design studios and started a small company out of the out of the house while my daughter was, was young so what was that experience like teaching as, as opposed to practicing? I mean, did you enjoy doing that or what? Well, remember, I had a music education degree. And I taught private flute through, you know, for many years through that process. So, you know, teaching was, was in my, I guess, in my... GMDNA. Yeah, somewhere in there. <laughs> yeah. And Design Studio was the, was the place that I, you know, found myself and doing some lectures and, and things like history of, well, actually, architecture and music. So I did kind of dabble around and looking into the relationships between architecture and music. So that was fun. And, but I did find, I was designing houses and renovating houses and doing some small commercial work, but it really wasn't for me. 
And I, I give a lot of credit to people who design houses <laughs> because you are in the middle of everybody's marriage. And, and, <laughs> and that's not a easy place to be. See, that's something that I'm not really good at. <laughs> so, you know, houses are fun because they're, they're small and, you know, and, and they can be done and nothing flat, right? But I really, it really just didn't well, suit me. Commercial real estate and, and residential real estate is a completely different it is, business. It is. And, know. Um, you know, I, for me, having been at a place like Comprehension and Fox, where everybody's, you know, in the professional real estate of high rollers and all of that, it was just a totally different culture shift. And while it was good for the time, for that moment in time, I realized that that wasn't, that wasn't the right place for me. So what spurred you to the next jump in <laughs> your career? to get a job somewhere else, I guess you might say. We decided to look for a, a smaller city because New York was essentially unlivable and unaffordable, right, for for you know, a family even of only three. So we looked at a lot of next-sized cities and even some smaller cities and ended up in Washington, D.C. Washington, it seems, almost always has work even in the bad times so this was around in the early 90s right so if you remember did you have connections in washington at the time no so no philadelphia is closer why not philly really look at because that's you're what an hour and a half from philly so yeah yeah. we didn't i think it probably had more to do with uh, availability of work because at the, that time, the federal government was this had in the 90s? peace. Yeah, this was in the early 90s. So yeah. there, was a, there yeah. was a big recession at that of time. Of course, yeah. It, it happened in Australia first, actually, or we probably would have stayed there. Right. Long there first, and then we got back and, you know, got slapped with it here. So, you know, the stability of Washington, D.C. and its work, which is something that continues to happen, right, over time, was a, was a, was a rational choice, I guess you might say, mm-hmm. for that. So then you... Went to work for EF here? Mm-hmm. Okay. How did you get that opportunity? Well, I just applied for a job. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, I mean, if you have KPF on your resume, that's not a bad thing. So that, that certainly did help, even though, you know, it was a tough time to find a job. It didn't happen right away. But I saw, you know, KCF as the, as the premier local design firm at the time in the city. And so that's, that's where I... Sought to be. <laughs> okay. So you were there for how long? And what did you do there? Uh, a few years. Exactly. Maybe two and a half years or something like that. And during that period of time, I worked on a number of, of projects. One of which will bring us back to my kickoff, actually. And during that time, the F and actually merged in Burroughs Grierson and interior design firm into the firm. And then later on, Smith Hinchman Grills came and actually purchased KCF. So there were these mergers and Smith is from they're they're a Detroit firm, aren't they? Yes, yes. And then they became Smith Group. It had many different name changes like that. That's my home. KCF SHG and then I became Smith Group. So during that period of time Mm -hmm. when all the that change was happening, I was looking looking around to see what else I might do. And at that moment I was working with Boston Properties on the Reston town center really? project they were going after one of the sites there mike hickok had the tenant which at that time was anderson consulting of enron fame of course <laughs> right which became Accenture. Right. right so he had the tenant and he was working on the interiors i was working on the feasibility study with boston properties at kcf and so mike and i met in ray ritchie's office 
literally his office. Met in his office, yes. <laughs> uh, which Ray loves. He loves that story, and we love to tell it. So, yeah, that's how Mike and I, you know, first met each other. Ray comes up, comes up in about every other yeah. of my podcast, I have to say. I <laughs> we all love Ray. We all love Ray. So, yeah, that was the first time we met, and yeah, we worked through that process. And that was the same time where I was looking around to do something else. And Mike actually offered me a job, which I turned down <laughs> at that time. However, I did like him a lot and we kept in touch, you know, for years after that. So instead, you ready for the next phase? Yes. <laughs> okay. It's a rather twisted uh, story. I had a client at the time at KCF whose wife was an owner in a small interior design firm with another woman partner. And they were looking for an architect, for one, and also someone who could eventually buy them out. So they were looking at their transition plan rather early, I would say, because they were, they were older than me, but not a lot older than me, I guess. But they were looking for a way to transition out, work, work less over time, and then eventually, eventually retire. So this was something I had never thought about, contemplated, was not looking for, or had not planned at all to do again through a lot of wrangling and making all my friends crazy during this period, <laughs> trying to decide what to do. <laughs> huh. I, I, I decided to jump off the cliff and go do it. And I did not know the interior design business at all. In fact, as a woman, usually the only woman in the room at all of these big meetings with big buildings with lots of people, I wanted to stay away from the image of being the interiors person, right? So I worked on skins, I worked on the outsides, I you know, I was doing, you know, the guy stuff. So I really didn't know anything about interiors. However, interiors is a really good business, it's a solid business. They had a solid business. I saw it as a way of maybe taking that business and and growing architecture to that business and having something that was more more complete and more diverse. So that was kind of what was like running around in my head. So you wanted to differentiate yourself, bringing the architecture into the into mm -hmm. the, the interior design stra strategy? Right. It's hard to do it that way. I was totally naive about this. <laughs> it's kind of what I think I wrote down somewhere. So why is it hard? Tell me why it's hard. It's harder to go from interiors to architecture than it is from architecture to interiors Primarily because the the body of knowledge that you have to have and the, the liability associated with it, the, the you know the the in integration of all the consultants, the contractual issues. There's just a whole range of things where architecture is more complicated, more has more liability and risk associated with it, all those things. But from a design standpoint, from a design purely standpoint, from design. Not not from the structural side, more from the, okay, the artistic sense of what you have coming inside out seems to be an interesting way of looking at it, though. Absolutely. And the two together, you know, is, is, is everything, right? Because architects look at, this, at the city or the context, the exterior context, and then toward the end. They're, they're interested in how this, this building, you know, fits into the, the broader fabric of a, of a city. And so right. their responses are about... You know, what people see when they approach it or what, mm -hmm. you know, it's volume, it's materials, it's sure. it's, uh, it's longevity over time, right. all those kind of things. Whereas right. a material designer starts from the person outwards. So they're concerned about how I'm going to feel when I'm sitting in my desk in this space 
and how I move through my day to do, to do the work that I do. So it's very personal going out in architects starts from in the broad, right. less personal, I guess you might say more formal going in. So the two together, you know, is, is golden. Right? It's, it's golden, but what's really interesting to me, and maybe I'm way off, but the importance of what you just said about interior design mm-hmm. has become, you know, exponentially more important today than it ever has in, in, in my experience in the industry. And so we'll talk about mm-hmm. that a little bit more yeah. in detail, I think, but I, I, I want to get your perspective on that. So I know you don't like talking about favorites. <laughs> You're going to make me do it, aren't you? <laughs> but I would like not necessarily particular buildings, but, you know, what what is cool today in architecture in your mind? What what is What are you seeing today that kind of, you know, makes it neat to be in the industry, in the, in the architectural profession? Well, that's a new take on that question. So that's good. I would say... At where I am in my stage today is that I want to solve problems. I want to solve problems for people. So I am particularly passionate about how we solve our housing issues. And that's not just to say affordable housing, which is an enormous, you know, mm-hmm. challenge that we have everywhere, you know, across the nation, but housing, you know, along the entire spectrum. So I'm always looking for how can we make it better, at less cost, quicker, so that it's affordable, so that people have great places to live, so that those people are going to live in Washington, D.C., so they're going to come to work at my firm. <laughs> 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 you know? and, okay. you know, those things are all linked, right? If, if our housing is too expensive, young people leave. And um, the architecture profession does not, you know, pay high salaries. And so... You know, a lot of us do it for the love of it, and we see this all the time. And so for a while, I was really focused on how do we keep young families in the city? What kind of product can we create at a price point they can afford? Or what are the other, maybe there are other, you know, financial structures that would allow them to move from a rental state to a purchase state? You know, this is kind of where ULI starts to come in because those are the kind of things that, that my work at ULI, you know, allow me to pursue with all these other, you know, smart and <laughs> smart people who know about these things. So, so I'm kind of going around. You're talking around conceptually about now. Yeah. Now let's be more specific. More specific. A project. A project. Yes. I wish I could tell you one that had solved that problem. I really do. What's the closest one you can think of mm-hmm. that we can share and cite? I don't know. I mean, there's a lot going on where we're sitting right here. In Northeast, and we're sitting in, in Noma. There's probably more construction and down near the ballpark than anywhere else in the city right now. Which is in large part why we're here. You know, we're here because it's a, it's an emerging, you know, very cool, hip, interesting neighborhood. But that's more at the neighborhood scale rather than the building scale. I think what's interesting about where we are here is that <clears throat> there really is a this kind of crazy mix of uses. Right? You have the old, the old, the old warehouse, not exactly industrial. But you know, the, the U-line distribution areas and yeah. all these, you know, kind of interesting buildings, like the building we're in is one of the most interesting buildings over here. A lot that's over in the Union Market area. Building upon that, the unique 
take that Edens has on the retail there where retail kind of blends in with office space with everything else and you just seamlessly flow from one to the next and you know and then there's more traditional you know housing development all around here what we need over here is more often and you know the car the car project is great for this neighborhood because you need to make them 24 7 neighborhoods if we have all residential then you don't have day traffic you don't have day traffic you don't have solid retail you don't have solid restaurant you start to depend on bars to get your you know to, to get income so i think well the, the cbd has the opposite problem right now. right right and because we've zoned things over the years we've zoned office here residential here industrial here and then you're expecting retail to be the you know the glue for everything i guess but it doesn't work because the neighborhoods themselves have to be mixed. I live on 14th Street. I moved there kind of in the early days in 2006 as it was mm-hmm. changing over. And there are a lot of restaurants and there are a lot of, there's a lot of housing. There's not enough office. And it's because the zoning favors FAR to, to residential over office. That means that restaurants have a hard time because they can't get the lunch can't get breakfast, can't get lunch. So therefore they have bars. Bars are what, you know, fuels their, you know, their ability to pay the rent there. So then you only have nighttime, nighttime goings on, right? And but if you could even all that out and let the market take place, you know, let it let it freely decide that well now's the time that, you know, a nice solid office building, get more office along here, then you would get that day contract. Well, then it becomes 24-7. I'm going to counter that thought process because of what's happened with the pandemic mm-hmm. and what's going on in the office market in general. Yep. So what I suggest maybe is a blend between the two, whereas residential buildings are built with office space in them such that you have office uses within residential structures, potentially, Mm -hmm. which I've seen in some new projects now where people have under one roof, every, everything that they can, can do, including amenities to enjoy and also to shop in per per day. So one office developer, which you cited a project that Oliver Carr is doing here, his approach to office is make the feeling like a hotel as you walk in. That's kind of his latest mantra. And he's not the only one doing that. I think just about every office developer is thinking that way to make it feel like a residential feeling, you know, be it temporary residential, but at least that you feel like you're in a comfortable place where you have comfortable seating, a place to go grab a snack or a drink or whatever mm-hmm. as you walk in. So talk about yeah. the evolution of this a little bit. Yeah, I'm all over that. Love it. I would say that all of this started years ago, primarily from hotel and lifestyle, which we call it influences on residential, all this amenity, the chase for the amenities, right? Yes. So influencing residential projects to create amenities and then the amenities from residential started to influence an office. So it kind of went in that that in that direction, I would say. And so now you're in this place that's kind of like blended mixed use, you, you would call it. And I think that really is a, a positive change to allow buildings, it has many different, many different positives that the that the person themselves, if they experience it, can go from office to home to 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 amenity to, you know, if they want to play play pinball or do golf you know golf sure golfing what do you call those things simulator simulator there you go or you know meet, meet people to to in a co-working space right to start up a new business whatever it is it's all good i think the thing that 
that we're running up against right now is that buildings over time, just like the zoning, and I was mentioned earlier, have been built to that for specific use, right? So our city has giant blocks that are made for big federal tenants, office tenants, right? So they're fat, big, and chunky. Whereas, you know, a hotel or a residential building wants to be narrow because you need to have access to light. And so the footprints of these buildings have developed over time to be single use. Mm -hmm. And now we're running into the problem where we want to, we have an oversupply of office and we're trying to convert some of those office properties to residential. And what you find is that you often have to cut holes in these buildings, either courtyards or Mm -hmm. cut away from facade, or you have to do some jumping through hoops (laughs) to make them work. So for me, the answer to this is something that's more of a universal footprint. I don't know, I've, I've called it flexibility in my head anyway is what I've called it, where you design a footprint that has the ability to morph into any number of uses over its lifespan. This is also a sustainable way to look at buildings, right? So we're not just tearing them down, build something different in another time and place that you can take the bones, you know, the bones of the building and and allow it to have many, many lifespans, you know, like a cat. (laughs) Yes. So we're starting to look at this. Uh, in fact, we didn't talk about iLab in our office yet, but just yesterday, our office voted on one of our research projects that is going to look at vertical mixed use. Now, is it vertical? Is it blended? What, you know, is it flex? Whatever we're going to call this to see if we can come up with you know, a solution to that. Well, I think you know, when I think of mixed use, I go back historically to a few buildings. And let me throw them out there. I don't know if you've ever been to Water Tower Place in Chicago? Yeah. That was probably the first pure mixed-use building I was ever in. And that goes back to the 1970s, I think, where the, the ground floor was retail. And then it was like eight stories of retail, six, seven, eight stories of retail. Then there's a hotel. And then on top of that is residential in, in a kind of a layer cake type yep. setting. And then I go to New York and I look at, you know, Columbus Circle Project, which is mm-hmm. this huge mixed-use project as well, which may actually be a KPF design. I don't know. But, no, I don't believe it is. And then I go to the wharf here in Washington, you know, large mixed-use, but there you've got the ceiling here, the, the, so it has to be more of a side-by-side mixed-use instead of stacked as much. And then I look also in Georgetown at Georgetown Park when it was built, which has retail right. down and at street level and then above it is residential, mm-hmm. um, another interesting mixed use. So how has that evolved over time? I mean, Well, know. it's interesting that you mentioned that because I worked on a building practically across the street from Water Tower Place in Chicago really? when I was at KPF, which was uh-huh. 900 North Michigan. Sure. And so that building was similar to Water Tower Place, it had a shopping mall, had a hotel, it had office, and it had uh, residential. And, it, you know, it's vertical, vertical, all vertical. Uh-huh. So this this kind of vertical mixed use has been around for a long time. Yeah. That was in the 80s. So I don't know what happened over time, but there it's, it has a lot to do with the financing and who's backing the, the money behind this because they want an exit strategy. And so if, if you're a if you're a specialist in office then it's hard for you to get your arms around, well, what happens if the hotel, you know, and I, and I want to out of this office, how do I, get, you know, how do I sell a piece of a building? So I think a lot of it had to do with maybe with the way the financial structures evolved over time. I mean, that's not my specialty, but it seems like we used to do it and then for, and then we didn't do it 
for a very, very long time. And so if you were building a mixed-use project, you were building an office building next to <laughs> next to a residential project on a podium, a shared podium, which would have retail. And so we've done lots and lots of that. That's a more traditional mixed use. But even the building I was telling you about in the city, we had a, we had a shopping mall on the bottom and an office above. There was no residential in that component. But I think we're kind of circling back around to see if we can revisit that. And many mm-hmm. of the companies, not just the development companies, but people who finance development companies, are in more markets simultaneously than they used to be. So we saw a lot of our developers, as housing became really big over the last decade, local developers who were strictly office became office plus housing, right? Sure. And started to move in that direction. And we moved in that direction as a firm as well. And so now if it's all in one house, people understand it better, but they still have to get, you know, they still have to get the financing for it. So I think you have to find those people who are comfortable with that arrangement. And again, well, you'll need, need to ask somebody else about that. What are your I'll, 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 No, I'll, I'll push back because I was a finance guy for oh, a long you are? time. Okay, you're going to tell me. I'll that. push back a little bit because regional malls, when they were originally started, were basically mixed-use projects in many ways and probably more complicated than most mixed-use because you are aggregating five or six pieces of land yeah. together because the, the department stores were owned separately Yep. The mall, plus you had peripheral land where the, you sell parcels. So it was more of a land development play, which is a complicated animal to put together in any event. But the other thing, from an architectural standpoint with mixed use, is the integration of the uses and how the transitions take place. Loading, parking, yep. utility, the aspect of retail being below residential and the smells, the sounds, the whole thing. How you design around those issues that has to be somewhat complicated. Yeah, it is. We're actually working on a building right now in Clarendon that is retail on the bottom and then it's two layers of office and then residential above. And, you know, it would be easier to put office over residential because of all the plumbing and everything that has to come down through the building. But in terms of, you know, the, I guess the rent structures now, it's better for the residential to be on top. I don't know. So those, you know, there are physical, you know, architectural problems we need to solve which is like that's in our world right this is these are the things that we like to solve that would be involved in this concept of a flex flexible building or a or a you know blended blended and vertical mixed use so that's exactly what we're about to undertake in a study here are there technical advantages or not advantages but technical advances that allow for this flexible develop design project that you've seen recently in the architectural area world or the building world that allow the more flexible design structure that you're talking about now? I don't know that it's so much technology as it is organizational methodology, design methodology. We are working on, or have been in the past two years, two or three years, working on a patent, actually, for something called frames. And the, the idea is that you create the pathways for all the vertical stuff that goes through a building. So all your mechanical and your plumbing, all of this stuff is is designed on a system. In this case, it was designed around housing, but I think it's it can be, and what we're going to be looking at next is how that can be applied to something more than just housing. And so the vertical mixed use concept. So the essentially it's a it's a grid, an organizational, three-dimensional grid and organizational pattern that allows all of that stuff that goes up and down to be pre-coordinated and it happens all in, in a certain set of places. 
You don't have to use all those places, but they happen in certain set of places. And then your kitchens, your baths can be designed. You can design a whole series of those such that though the plumbing and HVAC always ends up in those places. So you end up with a... It's uh, a modular? Is this a modular? It, it can be. And you can do it with conventional construction, but it is setting us up to do component modular, pod modular, and unit modular. So you can, you can, it's it's the precursor to being able to do that. But the beauty of it is that it's flexible. It doesn't have to be modular units, which have, you know, I'm all for, but it, you know, there are barriers to that in the marketplace as well. So if you can find the magic, <laughs> the magic location for things that go up and down through a building, that includes elevators, stairs, you know, and then all of the HVAC yeah, and right. the structure, right. you know, where the structure comes down and how that integrates with parking, if you can find the magic that is common between different kinds of uses, then you can go ahead and stack them in the most efficient manner. So that's what we're trying to get at. What I've seen with mixed use like that is usually you don't have a universal curtain wall. Sometimes they change based on the uses. I don't know if that's an architectural element (laughs) or whether there's a structural reason for doing that. Not a structural reason. It's just just to kind of show it's so this is your office, this is your residential portion, et cetera. Is that it? Well, I suppose if, if, if your intent is to communicate the different uses on the outside of the building, yes, it's not necessary. Though. <laughs> <Got> it. Okay. <laughs> so it's really a taste thing then, yeah, to some yeah, extent. Yeah. So you, I toured the American Geophysical Union building, which you, your, your firm designed, maybe not originally, but after the fact, when it was just finishing construction with my ULI mentor group led by Roger Frechette, who was the systems engineer for the project. Yes. He's somewhat of a cutting-edge engineer, and it's a special project. Unique, probably the most unique office building in the city because of the, I think he said there were 20 to 25 different systems that they had that were were kind of cutting-edge, some European, some Asian, different sources for these systems. Some, I don't know, I don't have all those systems here, but maybe you can cite what the design challenges were, uh, why you took it on, what were your goals, you know, as a, you know, a design, and how did you coordinate with Roger and the other uh, engineers and team members on the Okay, project? that's a that's a boatload here. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's see. Let's start with why did we go after it? I mean, we've always been in, uh, you know, designing in the sustainable world, so this is important to us. You know, Washington D.C. has been at the forefront primarily because the federal government required, you know, started with lead. Right. Years and years ago, right. so we all kind of you know got on got on that on that train, and then you say to yourself, well, you know, what's beyond that? What's next? And so we had a group inside our office again that came through an iLab project, which we do need to touch on because that's one of the things that's going to answer the question of what what makes us different. Sure. Look at a design competition through the AIA to design an affordable housing project that was net zero. And we had not done a net zero building, but this particular competition allowed us to dig into what that might mean. And this was a small project and it was a housing project. So it mm-hmm. had a lot, a lot of constraints. Having gone through that process and doing our own internal research, which is something that we do here, we were able to win that project over firms who had this in their portfolio. And I think one of the reasons was, and this kind of circles back to something we talked about earlier, is that we looked at not just the building and all the cool stuff you can do to a building to make it (laughs) net zero. We looked at the people 
inside that building and what it is their experiences and what they need to get out of, of, of a net zero building and looking outwards. So it was that thing with the, the, the outside in and the inside so out. So this is your view. interior design exactly. coming back. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and, uh, you know, but we didn't plan it that way. It just happened. You know, so we were looking at me like the building and the people. Because people have to, to use these buildings a little bit different and have to buy into, right, the mission that you're trying to achieve. It's not like you're going to torture them in the process of living in a net zero building, quite the contrary, but it is a different way of, of acting with your environment. So for us, this was like a labor of love and, you know, it was really, really important to the firm to be able to do the first net zero renovation office building in the city. And you give them incredible credit for taking this on as a goal. So they're earth and space scientists. This is what they do. Climate change is one of their big, big issues across the globe. And they wanted to, to be an example for the world. And so their goal was to be a catalyst and to be an example, to show others how they might be able to do this and encourage others to do the same. And they assembled a team. So we worked with Roger and from the very beginning looking at all kinds of sustainable strategies that we could uh, look at for this building. Was that a learning experience for you? Oh, firm? yeah. Are you kidding? So what did yeah. you learn? What were, the things you, <laughs> what were the things you learned that were most interesting? Well, aside from the individual strategies, we'll talk about a couple of them that are really interesting in themselves. What we really got out of it is that you don't just look at individual strategies and you pick, oh, I like this one, I like that one, I like number 22. You have to bundle them together mm-hmm. in ways that they reinforce each other. So this strategy here really works better with that strategy over there because when you combine those together, they become more than the two, two apart. So I think, you know, if we were to do it again, we'd be able to go into it saying, okay, we know sort of sets of things that that work together. But the whole exploratory process of going through what was, you know, low-hanging fruit, if you want to say, stuff that's been done plenty of times, you know, mm-hmm. just not enough. <laughs> and then there's things that are, you know, a stretch, things that are being done in Europe or being done in Canada or being done somewhere else that we don't do much here. And then there, there was a set of things that were kind of further out, newer technologies, things that might be carry some risk associated with trying those out. And so AGU wanted to find their place along that spectrum of having mostly stuff that's tried and true, but, you know, can we push, you know, the envelope in some other ways? So I would say the biggest one that pushed the envelope is the municipal heat exchange of the sewer line in, yeah, right. in Florida Avenue. So it's, it's like geothermal, I guess you'd say. We looked at geothermal on the site, but it's a tiny little footprint and getting into the parking garage and trying to dig wells underneath. There's just not enough space and there's no way to get to it. But there's this enormous sewer line right out in Florida Avenue. We were able to work with the city who was really, you know, fascinated and interested in all of this to be able to 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 do that. And if you go to the building, you probably saw, you know, on the tour, you mm-hmm. could go. They showed this, into it. this yeah. structure that it was German built. Right, right. So that was really, you know, uh, exciting, and that connects into the radiant ceiling panels, which is, have been used and have been used in D.C., but it's just not something that's terribly common. We also use uh, what we call a hi-fi wall, which is a, is, is a plant planted wall with mm-hmm. a kind of a light, almost like a waterfall. There's water that passes behind it, and the plant purify the air as it goes right. through the system. And so that was a tough one. You know, it was hard to get it right and working well. It's up and running now, so that's great. There's cisterns also right? mm-hmm. on the roof. 
And yeah, and then, then certainly the PV array, as you know, which is obvious because it's the big thing that you see. EV panels have been around a long time. They're getting more efficient, but they're still not efficient enough for the area that they take up when you're talking about an urban project. So right. we had to put use pretty much every inch and we had to project out urban property line by four feet, which is a zoning. No, no. Now <laughs> 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 we had to get over, right? And I think the fascinating thing about this project, it's in DuPont Circle. So it's in the historic district, not a historic building, but you know, a beloved building. I would say for its you know quirky quirky design, and so we had the ANCs and the you know Dupont Circle Associations and all these entities that we needed to go through and to to get the project approved. But this was a turnabout because the community bought into the mission, the net zero mission. They actually wrote letters in support of the project to HPRB to approve the project. Now, how many times does that happen, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know? Mm -hmm. And that's a great sign, right? So what is this building producing now for the industry with regard to lessons learned mm -hmm. that after doing it, I mean, this is a science experiment in essence by the <laughs> AGU because it's a nonprofit. I asked, right? I turned to Roger while we were doing the tour and said, so Roger, if I were a private, you know, developer and I wanted to Say, okay, build this for me. Could I ever make money with this? He said, no, John. <laughs> You're not going to make money with this project. <laughs> not at that scale. I mean, if, if you were doing something in the suburbs that was low rise, that had, you know, acres of roof or PV panel and, you know, where you could generate a fair amount of the electricity that way, you could, you could probably make this work. In a very confined state in an existing building, it's a tough thing to do. But what I will say to that is that when we started LEED, Everybody was like, well, how much, the, what's the premium, right? What's the premium for lead? What's the premium for silver, gold, platinum, blah, blah, blah. And we had, you know, percentages that we could kind of say, well, you know, for silver, it might be in the 5%, you know, blah, blah, blah. We, so over time, though, the industry changes and adapts to those things. Right. So the materials, the products, the people who are working with them, they start to change to meet the standards, right? And so somebody has to be out front and AGU just happens to be out front. If you go to California, there's a lot of people that are doing this, you know, climate that, that's, you know, more suitable. So with the pressure of climate change, if you look at jurisdictional codes are starting to get more stringent. DC has the BEP standards that we now have to all meet with our building as the, those are the sticks, you know, and then you've got the carrots that over here that are part of, you know, our desire to address issues of climate change and sustainability and the marketplace is starting to ask for it and demand it and want it. Even the financiers now are saying they yes, have to have it. That's right. They're looking at their portfolios at mm -hmm. large. They're looking at, at resilience strategies. They're trying to figure out where they're going to invest, mm -hmm. what cities are going to invest in because whether they have strategies to deal with, exactly. with climate change. And so between the carrots and sticks, each side, you know, there's going to be a place where Net zero won't be so, you know, such an unusual thing. And products will start to, you know, the PV rays hopefully will make a jump, you know, in their efficiencies. And well, technology continues to evolve, and, right? Yeah, yeah. As far as how we're going to, what we're going to see from it, the building has a, a, a knock room, if you will, which you probably saw in the, in the basement where the 
building engineer can see exactly what's happening yeah, in front of the building. That's so cool. We will not know the, the real outcome of that probably for a year because they're going to start monitoring it with people in the building. Because <laughs> right now, you know, people haven't been there on a regular basis and that changes the way that Right, happens. sure. Mm-hmm. So we'll have data in a year. But it's mm-hmm. designed to be to have to be five percent in the positive. In other words, generate five percent more energy than it uses. Got it. Because you need to have a uh, a buffer, <laughs> you know, to make sure you're gonna hit net zero because that's really important. So I think, you know, it's a matter of time. And that time may come really fast because I don't know if you saw the new reports that just come out on climate change happening a lot faster than we thought. So well, world politics may change a little of the emphasis right now. I'm hoping not, but you know, yeah. <laughs> we'll see. We'll see about that. So let's shift. You had, you had, you've been hankering to talk about this. So let's, what makes Hickok Coal unique? So I'm going to answer that question now. Right. Well, first thing I would say is that every company and organization should ask themselves this question. Of course. And it's not easy to answer. Right, because you know how many architecture firms are there in Washington D.C. There are a lot, and I would say that having been in this business for thirty something years and this firm twenty years, you know, it took us it took us a long time to answer that question, and it came about after the two thousand eight recession. We had some people with not as much to do, and we entered a design competition for the office building of the future that Nayot had put on. And that allowed us to bring people from our different disciplines. So primarily office and interiors and lifestyle interiors, not so much housing. And we came up with a concept that is not unlike what we've kind of been talking about, which is a footprint that is narrow and long that you can combine in different ways that allows different uses to be to be stacked vertically and over time could become something else. So it's of a dimensional quality that could be an off. And we looked at we looked at interesting structural ways of spanning full 60 feet using more of a, 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 a concrete system that allowed allowed the piping and ductwork to go through it, combination of a web and, and concrete slab. Is this a and Washington DC focus or is this so, for instance, if you were in Reston, would you think differently than you would in Washington, downtown Washington? Well, because of height, yes. I mean, the yes. site we chose, it was one of JBG's sites just by chance. You need to have something to work on, right? You right, some of course. Parameters. So we just chose a site that was out in the Tyson's area. So we had some, some wiggle room without it being out in the field <laughs> you know, somewhere. It. So right. there was a context, but okay. uh, roads and things that you had to work with. But that... The process of going through this design competition, and we ended up being one of one of four winners nationally, which was really, you know, super cool, got us into this thinking about uh, researching and figuring out what the future may bring, right? And how could we position ourselves and think about that future to design for, for what we call what's next now. So that, that led to the program called iLab within the firm. And MyLab is a microgrant program where staff can pursue their passion projects. And in exchange, we give them a certain number of billable hours. So let's say 80 to 100, 120 billable hours of time to spend on it. If they're passionate about it, then they typically will spend as much of that, you know, on their own as well. And they might team with... Um, so this is internal R&D? Internal, internal R&D. And they have to apply for it. And we usually vet the applications to just make sure that it's benefits to them, but it benefits the firm. It's something that we think is going to take the firm forward. And then the they pitch to the office and the office votes. 
So we just did this yesterday. Wow. <laughs> We've been doing this for more than a decade. So it kind of went into hibernation over over a pandemic. How yeah. comprehensive is this? So, so um, you know, is this just you know schematics or is this full structure? That, that this uh, it's cons- it's a concept, I guess you would say. So okay. I mean, you can only how much can you do? One of the first labs we had was about was about modular housing, and so one of our young people took took a site and and designed you know in concept modular versus con- conventional construction. She worked with the modular housing company to understand their parameters. You know, basically designed the units around those parameters. Worked with a developer to, to look at the costs. Worked with a contractor to look at how that the, how they would build it. Look at the construction schedule at the time. Was this a real site? So you and had to so do the earthwork as well. We picked a real site. A real site, okay. and it was one that was not entirely you know rectangular. So she she picked one that had you know a little kink in it so that it wouldn't be you know just little you know an angle undulations you know. too. Or uh, was well, it no, flat? it was it was more of a flat site, but it it did have it did have angles to it because of the road structure around it so i mean she spent a fair amount of time on that she ended up presenting that at an aia convention in the modular housing i don't know organization of america whatever they're whoever they are that association found us on our website and she she spoke to them so it was really kind of phenomenal we didn't expect this kind of thing but once we you know had it on our website and then people started to look for it and googling it and then they would find their way to us we've had all kinds we did a virtual reality one which we now have a virtual reality machine upstairs that was built by our by our it director we've had them on we had a hydroponic wall system that that had had a little tubing through it that you could grow Grow, growies, I guess you'd say, and use it as a facade system. And, and a manufacturer came to us and, and looked at a prototype for it. All kinds so of so back to know. the AGU building for a moment. Was some of that ILAB can't it, come out yes. of that? So they can use a design competition as their basis for an ILAB if they want to. And so there was you know, the the project designer for that project was one of the team members to look into how to go net zero. And so as I said earlier, having gone through that that process and the research associated with this put us in a position to be able to compete for the project. We have, and so, so just yesterday, we just picked the vertical mixed use is one of the one that, one of the ones that was selected yesterday. We started um, this also then, so that's the staff led. And then we started a program which we call sort of directed research, meaning that those of us that are out in the world and our marketing department who see things that need to be done, we can decide that we're going to research certain things. Right. And then we, we devote um, some time and effort towards those. So we did that with um, Mass Timber. So CLT, cross-laminated timber, we started looking at that probably five years ago. And that eventually led to the first CLT, what you call top-up, I guess, on top of a concrete building down by the ballpark, ADM Street. So we're doing... Is that the first one in the city? First one in the city. And we were able to work with the city to get a code waiver in order to do so because a lot of this stuff these things are ahead of where the building codes are. So, so is the entire structure wood, or is there is there metal columns that you you put the, the wood on? No, the structure is wood, but it's on top of a concrete building. Now, there's also steel involved in various places throughout the building. Is it, but, but reinforced, it is a it reinforced is a, steel, or no? You know, it is a it is wood, it solid is wood, wood. And, you know, had the connections are steel and things like that. The other steel that's worked into the building has more to do with the core, the core around it. But so again, this kind of ex- exploration of new ways of doing things, whatever that may be, whether it's a construction method or, or 
or an organizational like frames is or really has formulated what is our mission. So back to what makes us unique. Years later, when we were rebranding and kind of rethinking ourselves, we came up with our mission, which I actually love. Most people, you know, you think, oh, you got to have a mission. It sounds really boring and blah, blah, blah. But, <laughs> but here it is. What is your mission I statement? love it. It's really short and sweet. Hickok Cole is a forward-focused design practice connecting bold ideas, diverse expertise, and partners with vision to do work that matters. So this is about coming up with ideas that solve problems, architectural problems, people problems, whatever those may be that, that design can, can attack. Um, looking out for what's new, finding other people who can do this with you so that we don't have to do this by ourselves. So we often team with engineers or, or contractors or structural folks or you know anybody whose expertise we need, developers, to, to study these things. And then we look for these partners of vision, other like-minded, hopefully developers, right, who want to do this, this work with us. And so that's it. It's really an inspiration to think about how, how, can we, how can we do this? How can we change the world, I guess you might say, mm-hmm. in whatever small way that we can. You're thinking like a developer. It strikes me. No, really. Not just design. <laughs> I never thought of that. No, way, but, <laughs> but in a way you are because you, you want to make an impression. And it's more than just, it's almost like, you know, it's my structure. And you, feel, you almost have an ownership type sense to, sensibility to your, your thought process. I suppose, way. but I guess we would freely love to see everybody else do it too. So I guess we're not going to give up our research. But we are hoping that others will follow instead, just like net zero. I mean, we want everybody to do net zero. We don't need to own it, you know, ourselves. Mm-hmm. But, we, but we like being out front, <laughs> I would say. Well, you're going to have to be out front because <laughs> perhaps expanding on what I asked earlier, what epochal changes do you see happening as a result of COVID-19? Mm-hmm. So I'm going to get into a little bit more. Yeah, yeah. Will urbanization and TOD remain mainstay for mixed-use development, or are we going to fragment a little bit more? No, I wish I had the crystal ball on this. What I would say or what we're seeing is that people don't want to leave their houses right now. I mean, we're in the place, we're in a very unusual spot, like right now, as you and I are talking here today, because we just brought our people back on our three-day hybrid schedule this week. We were in, and then we were out. And now we're back in, mm-hmm. and a lot of companies have not quite got there or are about to, to go there because of a big change in the way CDC has, has looked at COVID and how, you know, Omicron is now hopefully down and maybe gone. So we're going to find out pretty soon. But I can tell you that people got used to not having to get in, get in a car. They didn't have to go anywhere. They didn't have to get dressed up. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, all those things we mentioned earlier. So getting them out of their houses and back to the office is not so easy. And they have, you have to show the value of being with other people and how that, how that improves not only your own, you know, your learning experience if you're a young person. How do you, how do you learn from people if you're, you know, working on your basement? It's very or, hard. Uh, how do you exchange ideas? How do you explore all these things that, you know, we want to do if you can only do that by making an appointment. <laughs> How do you recruit? How do you bring people? We, we hired people through the whole pandemic. Yeah. It's crazy. So we're meeting them on a screen. 
right? right? And then eventually you hope to run into them in the hallway. But I think as far as transportation goes, we got to make it easier. I mean, it's just difficult. It's difficult. You know, hopefully, you know, Metro will, you know, improve and also adapt to the different patterns that people are are moving throughout the city. I mean, the metro system was not was designed for people out coming in and out. Yeah, it was not. It was not designed for going across and around and inside the city. No. and though so, you know, buses and, and the scooters and the Uber and all those things have have helped. It's given people more options for mobility, and I think that's going to be important. So, one interesting thing that we discovered too is parking. If people are working on a hybrid schedule, parking spaces that you have that you're paying for on a monthly basis are empty about a third of the time. Mm -hmm. And when we moved into our new office space and we're negotiating with our landlord, we're saying, well, you know, we have 20 some spaces, whatever we have. Well, we want to be able to share those parking spaces with more than one person. And that there's no system, the parking management companies do not have a system to do that. Because that means you have to, we ended up being able to get two passes for a person, mm-hmm. but are they really checking each spot and the number of the spot to see who's in and what? Probably not. So I think there's a big opportunity for reducing parking in office, which is a huge of component of cost. If we can figure that out. Now at home, it's different because people leave their cars there and you don't get as much value out of that. But in a mixed use, if we're talking vertical mixed use, you know, parking well, sharing. And this all idea has been going around for a while because of the autonomous yeah, yeah. Mo- movement. But the pandemic obviously accelerated it dramatically, mm-hmm. it seems to me. But the, the other thing is the use of space. So yeah. when I look at, you know, downtown office buildings today, most of them are, you know, <laughs> You know, they aren't necessarily, as you talked about, designed for residential use. The city is pushing really hard. They have an RFI out right now for figuring out how to bring people to live in the CBD. It's a ghost town down there, even in the midday. I mean, I've been down for meetings, you know, three o'clock in the afternoon. There's nobody on the street at all. It's well, that's quiet. The restaurant component of that, you know, with in retail with the COVID has yeah. been really de- devastating, you know, for cities. I think, too, on the office side, I mean, I think we as you know, leaders have to provide office space that people want to be in. Exactly. It has to be enticing. It has to support collaborative thinking as well as, you know, sort of individual heads down. So we <laughs> designed and constructed our office space during the pandemic, which was interesting in itself. And so we haven't seen all of the office, but we have many, many, many little places where people can, can, can work. We went all laptops, even though we all have, we have large screens on our desks, large format screens. So you can't as easily move around if you're really working on drawings that are on these, on these big screens. However, they can take their, you know, their laptop. It can go back and forth from home to the office. I'll see people when once the weather gets nicer, they'll be working out on our terrace. I see them in our pantry. We have lots of little, we have phone rooms. We have two-person rooms, three-person rooms, like the one we're in. We have conference rooms of all sizes. We have informal, you know, sofas. We all of these places that people can move around, and they're starting to do it. I find it really fascinating to watch, you know, who who will actually go and do that. And they, they change their place during the day. And the places where they have to come together to meet with people and do the creative work that we do, you know, have to support that. So we have 
technology everywhere. We have screens everywhere. We have you know all the microphones and the cameras, and which was hard to get all of that set up. But we're going to be living with this this hybrid world that I don't think we all know how that's going to pan out <laughs> right now. No. I mean, there's a lot of people talking but, about it. But, but designing it toward it is the tough exactly. part, it seems to me. Yeah, yeah. As we talked earlier about what Oliver Carr is doing, you know, this mm-hmm. whole entertainment feeling thing but as you go into the office and I'm one of my friends is, is at WeWork and so you go into a WeWork and that type of environment it's very flexible they want walls to move they want everything to kind of just be modular in essence internally so is that kind of the wave of the future I mean a lot of office people are thinking the shorter the lease the more flexible the tenants want it and then WeWork he told me that their largest their largest clients internationally are Google, mm-hmm. you know, all the big tech firms, Amazon, all the big tech firms want that flexibility to move around. So how do you design for that? And, and so, and then there's the, def- then the defense department wants their skiff. They want their, you know, their, their <laughs> secure, space, their secure right? space. So you do have this, you know, still a panoply of things mm-hmm. But, you know, the the law firms, I mean, I was talking to one of my attorney friends the other day, and he's back in the office. I said, so, Fred, how many people are still in your office there? He said, oh, there's my associate here, and that's it. And this is a big law firm. Well, you know, that's intriguing in itself because law firms are primarily office space, right? They typically have their own offices. Right. And that's probably the safest environment in a COVID world. So that tells you it's not about it's not about that, <laughs> right? It's about something else. You know, if you give people the opportunity to work from home, then they're going to do it. And, and you know, and w- at what point do we realize what we lose in that process? I mean, I ultimately believe that people need people. People need to interact with people, not just you know on a work basis, but socially. And, and how do you form a culture? How do, what is your culture if it's always through a, a screen? Is it possible? Yes, it's possible. But there's kind of a, a false, falsity of, you know, of being on a, on a screen and you can't read the body language and you can't see, you can't read the room, you can't tell what people are really thinking uh, because they're not necessarily going to say what they always think. You know, that's normal. I think that we'll struggle through the hybrid period, right? Where people are in and people are out and you're trying to figure out the technology component of that. So if I'm in a conference room, I can see people on the screen. They can see us, but, you know, the person down there is really far away. You can't really see their face. Do we need cameras all around? Do we need more of a, you know, are we going to end up in the metaverse because that'll be the easiest way for people to see each other? I don't know. I think we'll go through that period of struggling with technology to do that. But I think, I don't know, I have... I have hopes that people will value being with other people over time. And it's going to be hard for young people to learn, to be mentored. It's going to be hard for, you know, to be seen and interact with with your supervisors or your leadership in a way that they're always reminded of you, right? These are human things. How do you, you know, how do you know who to promote if you never see them? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Well, the question is, are you rating their work? Are you rating their personality? Well, how do you rate their work? You know, it depends on what you're doing. Well, that's true. I mean, if it has to do with interacting with people, then you have to be with people, right? But if it's, you know, in architecture, there's a certain 
physical thing you have to deliver. Yeah, we're got a, teams. Yeah, 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 but you're delivering a product. Mm-hmm. You can do that remotely to a point, right? And then physically you have to deliver something. Yeah. So yeah. it's... So yeah. I think it's, you know, there's a lot out there that's to chew on, but I think getting to the office is really important. So how do you get there that's, that's just not torturous? So, yeah. you know, back to your DOD and transportation and modes of getting in. And flex hours makes a big difference because it's, you know, you can yeah. avoid the traffic rush. Now, is your office open 24-7? I mean, can no, people come in here anytime? They can, you know, we've always been pretty flexible but generally we'd like people here from it's seven to seven is kind of the zone of time and you can come in between those hours but again we have what we call core hours where we want people to be available whether they're here or at home between 10 and 4 and you might work early or you might work late but during that zone of time you want we want them to be basically available to you yeah i mean if you're collaborating with somebody you need to talk to them about what they're working on right yeah and you don't want to make the rest of your team do that at seven o'clock at night necessarily. <laughs> so, exactly. So we're trying to find the right balance and we won't know, I don't think, for several months. So looking at your business, how do you look for new opportunities? Because of your reputation, developers seek you out for projects? Well, yeah, we've been around for 30 something years. So we're, we're, we're well known in an, in an entity in the city. So yes, we have our set of clients that we've known for years and years. There are also many, many new clients. We started one of the earlier threads is that Washington is usually a pretty good place to do business, even in you know, recessions and tough time. Less so, less so on the federal government. We've depended less on the federal government since the 2008 recession, which is probably good for the city. But a lot of, of companies come to D.C. from elsewhere. And so they find us, you know, they find us through those means. We also have an office in Richmond, Virginia, that we started through a co-working office. So we talked about that. Had somebody who lived there, wanted to move back there, was from there. She wanted to start an office there. So we put her in a co-working office, which was, you know, a, a not a huge investment. Gave that a number of years. That grew uh, to a point where that was untenable. And now they have their own space and it's growing so that office is now acts a little bit as a, as a gateway to the South Mid-Atlantic for us because a lot of developers are looking southward for, for opportunities to develop. Mm-hmm. And so we have clients here. They're doing work there. We've got new clients that we've found there because we're in, you know, in Richmond. Sure. And that has led to projects in Raleigh and Charlotte and Norfolk. And, you know, so, so, so you see your footprint expanding yes. over time? Yes. Yeah, yeah, so I think, but these days, because of we were thrown into remoteness, you realize that you don't necessarily have to have a physical office to do work further away. I mean, it, you always want to be able to sit in a room with your client at some points, but the work can be done even if we have a client relationship out of Richmond, the work can be done here or mm-hmm. vice versa. Or, sure. So we're f- more flexible, I think, as a business now because we went through this <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. tragic thing, but you know, we learned something in the process. So do you f- see yourself growing as a firm, having more employees and more projects and more footprint and more, you know, well, more, we, more, more? It's interesting because most, I don't know, companies look to grow, right, in some way or another, but we really have always looked we, we want quality over quantity 
Got it. Yes, we're growing. We're growing, you know, graphically through uh, the Richmond office and within the opportunities that brings us either there or here. Yes, we had to add the 10 desks we took out to, to save some money <laughs> when we were constructing our office. And now the desks are back because we've had time. Sure. So, you know, it's not that we are not looking to grow, but it isn't the main thing. We would rather have partners with vision doing this interesting and great work rather than chasing a lot of volume, Got I it. should say. So from a discipline standpoint, though, would you expand disciplines? So oh, some architectural really? firms, for instance, have an engineering division, or they have even morph into even doing their own projects or, mm-hmm. you know, going, you know, more of a, a vertical, you know, discipline expansion. Is that the process? Well, it kind of has happened. That has happened organically, and I think it will continue to do that. I mean, we have commercial office, commercial interiors. We have housing, multifamily housing. We have lifestyle interiors for multifamily. Lifestyle also does retail and some hospitality. So hospitality is a place that we mm-hmm. would like to go because it's kind of a natural yeah. outcome of all of the yeah. other things that we do. Work with universities, particularly around dorm rooms or classrooms and those kind of things come from both office and come from housing so there are things we tend to... What about to, institutional, like well, museums? And that well, kind of we thing. have done... I mean, we we were the, the architect of record for the spy museum, and that was a incredible opportunity. We don't typically do AOR work, but because it was giving us an opportunity to put our foot into a new market, yes, we do it. It was strategic, and it's a fabulous building, a fabulous... So it's a Smithsonian, we're going to build a new building. Would you compete for that or not? We might try, but that would be something <laughs> for us to get. But... We're now doing a new pavilion for National Geographic, which we got through initially through doing all of the interiors work. And now this pavilion, which just sits in, in the plaza and connects all of the buildings, that project has grown and grown and grown. And it essentially is a museum project in the end because we are, we are coordinating with all these really fascinating media consultants. You know, there's going to be a wall of screens and wow. it has an auditorium and it has all cool. this. So... You know, that grew out of some of the other things that we we're doing, which someday in the future will give us the ability to do another project like that. So our mm-hmm. our tact has been mostly through organic growth and, op- and opportunities that we seize and then make something out of those opportunities to get more work like that. So, so it's not necessarily a strategic planning thing, kind of a organically well, grows well it is strategic in the sense that that's the way we've decided to go about it i guess you might say <laughs> okay and because we say that we say that this is how we how we're going to go about it there is a lot of interest in in institutional work because they're buildings that are you know built suits they're inside out you know we did the npr headquarters that was you know a really exciting interesting project csis we love those kind of Buildings that are in whole, so back to interiors and architecture combined. So that's an area of, of interest, and some of that can come through university work, perhaps, or or through the museum side, maybe. Sure. Some of these that you would have to hire a strategic, you know, a, a leader to come in and, and create the market sometimes. And we've done that as well. But So let me now evolve to your design philosophy a little more. And I shared with you, yep. uh, and I'm going to have this in a link on the show notes, an essay by Paul Graham, who's a technology fellow who started Y Combinator, but he writes essays also on his website. And this essay is called Taste for Makers. And it's he wrote it with the idea of design, you know, 
is design tasteful and what 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 how do you infuse taste in design in essence <laughs> so and he comes at it from a software standpoint but he also broadens the scope into art and architecture and music and everything else so mm-hmm. because you have both music and architecture in your background how do you see this idea of taste infusing into your work I guess I would rather we call it beauty, although he does talk about taste. I enjoyed the article, by the way. I thought it was it was it was thought provoking and interesting to to say pick apart what what makes good design. I guess you'd say. Okay. And then the taste part of it is how how someone responds interprets. to right, interprets and, and and responds to that to to what they feel is beauty. And I think the the underlying premise in the article is that is that you know simplicity is beautiful right that was one of the places where he started so you know if you're talking about a mathematical formula which is what he's saying the most beautiful mathematical formula is the simplest one that that gives you the answer right Mm -hmm. well you know math is a little more math engineering those kind of things they're more there is you know presumably a right answer somewhere (laughs) you might find out 10 years from now that wasn't quite the right answer but at the time it's the right answer Design and architecture and music is a little more fuzzy than that, right? I mean, there may be many solutions to any particular problem that you're that you're trying to solve. So, but clean, I think clean a, lines. I love clean lines. I also love over the top crazy stuff. <laughs> <laughs> so, but, I, but that's another element I, of taste. Yeah, I don't think that these element. are mutually exclusive. No, but they aren't. And um, it's another element. You know, we were talking before that, you know, you might find some beautiful stone building with one opening in it. And it's just somehow it's the right size, the right place, the right materials, the right proportions. And it's beautiful. And that probably follows, you know, thousands of years of, of proportion and, and a scale and, you know, all of the mostly Western traditions of what, you know, what makes what makes beauty that often relates back to mathematics and and, and the patterns you find in nature. So people want to see patterns. They want to understand what they see. And so they look for structure. They look for pattern. They look for composition. On the other hand, you know, he's a little down on ornamentation because it feels like that's kind of like slapping it on top of the beauty somehow. But we were talking earlier, if you go to Sagrada Familia in Barcelona, I don't know any other building that has more on it than that or <laughs> is more and more and more. What's the rationale it behind it? Astounding. What is the rationale behind it? I think that's a very idiosyncratic, you know, <laughs> personal thing. Like a Gaudi, you know, they have the tradition Gaudi is, is also, you know, Barcelona. So they have their own, you know, kind of cultural tradition of many surfaces covered by many materials and colors and textures and all of that. So it kind of comes out of of that. that sense of taste, I guess you would say. But when you go inside that building, you are transported to some other world, just like you might in something that is simple with one beam of light beautifully placed, you know? So I think to say that one is more beautiful than the other because one is more simple than the other, I don't know. That's a little too simplistic for me, I would say. But in terms of how we approach design, I would say... You know, we we probably start with sort of honesty and I, authenticity is a word that's used way too much, but <laughs> earnestness, I don't know. I, you know, something about, you know, what you see is what you get. So, you know, we do tend to express what it is we're designing in a pretty straightforward manner. We're going to 
trying to do backflips and, and you know, or, or. How do you balance create practicality, which if it doesn't stand up, it's not going to be good architecture, right? <laughs> That's for sure. <laughs> With the, the, the frills in essence, or the, the ornamentation. So we're, where do you, where do you, where is that line, you know, met? And I, does it depend on the project, I guess, or what? It does, but I think, I would say the ornamentation or, I don't know what else you might call it, I hate to use the word decoration, but, it, it, you know, the the layering on of, of pattern, texture, material, those kind of things, for me, and I, I think most people in the firm would say, should emerge from the essence the simplest, simple essence that's behind it, right? As opposed to saying, oh, I really like, you know, I like triangles, and so I'm going to put triangles all over this wall. It's, it's you know, that hopefully the triangle has some meaning in its, you know, behind it. Is, 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 it, a, is it derived from the shape of the site, or is it something that has to, to, to do with the, with, you know, three equal sides, or does it have, you know, it, is, does it have meaning associated mm-hmm. with it? And mm-hmm. I think that's when you know, ornamentation or elaboration, if you will, is is part of the essence of the thing. So we'd like to say, you know, we have to understand the context. And there's lots of different kinds of contexts, you know, whether it's the fabric of the city or the views that you're looking at or in, or it could be, you know, it could be a political context, a cultural context. It could be the program. It could be the budget. It could be, you know, how fast does it have to get done? And, what problems is it trying to solve? So, you know, it's, it, we are in a problem-solving business. Yes. And we solve that those problems through this creative process. So it's a combination of practical stuff, functional stuff, and arty stuff. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if you can do both, then, you know, then you've really you've really done something, something great and hopefully beautiful. <laughs> it becomes beautiful in the process, right? So we also want to know that there's an idea or basic concept behind what it is you're trying to achieve. So what is what is the main idea? And that can sometimes be abstract, it could be an artistic idea, or it could be derived from you know the, the mission of the company in some way, you know, or or something like that. But something that describes the story behind what you're designing. So what am I trying to achieve? And then you can you can then take other options and, and judgments all can come back to saying, okay, does that, does that emphasize and make that big idea stronger? Mm-hmm. It's not always easy to find those things, but that's what we try to teach our young people so that we can then articulate that to others, right? We have to tell the story of how this design came to be and why. Mm-hmm. Why behind it, that's what's most interesting. And then we, have, we can figure out the how, you know. <laughs> yep. You can always figure out the how. But the why is really harder. To, it's like the mission we were discussing earlier. Why do we do what we do? And what are, you know, what are we trying to achieve is much harder to, to find yourself in than, oh, well, I, can, I know how to build a multifamily housing building. You know, but if you see a bizarre structure sitting in the middle of nowhere and you say, ugh, that's awful. <laughs> And then you look, you go to some place like this place in Spain and Barcelona, you saw this structure and it's like, wow, this is like, so there is taste, right? Yeah. So there, there is. <laughs> right? I don't, I don't disagree that there is taste. I don't know how to, to define it. And I don't know if it's, it's, there's probably pieces of it that are universal, but I think a lot of it is 
you know, cultural, situational mm-hmm. in your place. And then I've always heard the, stri- the, the term form over structure or substance, function. form, form, form over, over function su- or substance function. or function. So what, how does that, how do you interpret that in architecture, I guess, to some extent, you know? Well, the phrase in architecture that you hear is form follows function. Follows function. So that's, you know, a phrase that, that we're all familiar with as, as architects. And so that is, it's expressing the idea that if you know what the problem is, or then when you solve that problem, then it will be beautiful, tasteful. It will have done everything it needed to do. So... The problem is, is when There's you don't know what the what 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 the function is. Yeah. Well, most buildings have something, something you can get your arms around. You know, if it's an art museum, then its its function is to is is to display put, art. Dis- display the art in such a way that people will be will will be drawn to it, and the building mm-hmm. doesn't get in the way of it. You know what I mean? Got it. <laughs> so there is a function there. But There's a lot. Of but as we talked about an office building today. You know, it's a different, it, 10 years ago might be different than what it is today, right? Right. So I would vote for flexibility, right? So how do you build in, how do you make something flexible enough that it can be whatever it needs to be over time? And then we're back to that same kind of, you know, same discussion we had earlier about allowing buildings and spaces to evolve over time and not making them too single purpose. Mm-hmm. So let's shift now to hiring and how you interpret and what you look for. Uh, earlier, and I don't mention that in my questions, but I interviewed David Kitchens. And David, who's one of your friends in the business, he said there's different disciplines within the architecture profession that's important. Like, for instance, new, getting new business and the business development side of it. There's the, the really hard science of design and physically doing it and then there's the economics of of it as well and you know making sure that not just new business but operating the, the business so yeah, talk about profitable projects talk, <laughs> you know talk about all those things and how yeah. you you know and then uh, and what lens do you look at when you're hiring somebody you know do you peg people when you're hiring them oh this one's going to be a good x and as far as putting them as far as within the firm mm-hmm. or do you look at somebody that in a general fashion then you will mold them per se based on what you mm-hmm. think is the best suit for you know yeah. place for them to be well it's both and it depends on where they are in their careers so you know in in the architectural profession and the design interior design profession there are people who are going to be more a lot more designers and there are fewer of those i mean we all go to school thinking we're going to be the next, you know, super duper designer. And it's probably maybe 10%. A stark architect. It is actually, you know, just unbelievably talented designer. But we work in teams. And so there are designers. There are what we call project architects, which are, are who are the people who put together the drawings and who know the technical aspects and who know, who know how to detail the, the buildings and make sure that it's going to stand up like we talked before. There's a project management side of it. So that's how you... In, engage with the client and manage the client and manage the process and manage the team to to make a profitable projects. Development is usually held up in, in the higher levels of the company, but we're pretty pretty diverse in that regard. We push that down to to any level. Young people they come in and they're you don't know you don't necessarily know where they where they are, and so in the beginning you're really just trying to to teach them the the biz in general and. Typically, people kind of start to find Filter their way the to the to the place 
where you know where they have their where their talents lie and some people have more than one talent or they can do this or they can do that as far as looking for people generally the younger people what we're looking for is that, that they can do that they have a background hopefully in in rabbit which is the the building information modeling system that we use on a computer right so that everything is done on a computer these days and if a come right out of school and they have nothing there. That's really tough. I mean, we can train people and we do train people even when they come in with, with some of that training. That is more important than it ever was. So architectural schools ago. now are focused yeah, completely they're, they're, on that. Well, they are producing their design on computers. Rabbit is such a complex software that they're not going to know all about it, but they're, they're going to know something about it, right? So we're looking for these, just the basics that they can actually do something on these computers or, or SketchUp or all these other uh, softwares. When you move to higher levels, then you're looking for certain kind of, kind of skills or holes to fill. So we might need, there may be a time period of time where we need more project architects because we're in a lot of documentation phases of projects, or we might need, you know, a solid project manager. And so we're, we are actually, you know, right. We have job descriptions and we're saying, this is what we're looking for. And then people come to us hopefully, you know, to fill those slots. So it happens many different ways. Another way it happens is that you might find a person who you think is outstanding and then you build a job around them. Interesting. So, and that even happens inside the office. We believe in, I don't know if you've ever heard of strengths finding. Of course. I I assess my clients that way for my career planning. Really? Yeah, I do that. I don't think we've ever assessed a client, but we assess ourselves. So you're, I read somewhere you're a maximizer. I am. And so am I. That's my number one skill. Oh, cool. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah, one time we had mapped everybody in the firm. It's been a, it's been a number of yeah. years. But what I, I don't read lots and lots of you know, business books or whatever. For whatever reason, that one really rang true to me because I like what I liked about it is that everything is a strength, right? And, and you just have to figure out what So is that an assessment for... Coming not into for the jobs, firm? no. We don't use it for that. We used it, when we started to use it, it was more about under, people understanding each other within a team because mm-hmm. we all have different styles and yeah. different strengths. And so part of what it's about is not only you as an individual, but how you interact with other right. people with different kinds of strengths. And mm-hmm. that's where, you know, personnel issues come from, right? Because exactly. Usually it's just people clashing because they don't get each other. So that's what, you know, I think that's interesting. But... Sometimes, you know, you'll find that somebody is really good at something and there's no real job, you know, traditional job description that the AI or anybody else has come up with that matches those strengths. So you just have to create it around them. And we've just created a, a new role for Rhea Bassler, who started our lifestyle project. She's a person who gathers loads of information from the outside world that is beyond design, just, you know, she's What's happening out in the world? I don't know when she sleeps <laughs> because she seems to read everything and she's on the, you know, on the cusp of everything. And she's really then good at, at communicating what all this stuff is and how it might relate to what we do in design. So she's wow. taking big, big ideas out in the world that are happening or things that are projected to happen. And then how, do, how is that going to affect what we do? So we created a job for her. And so she's our... Director of trend testing. So what idea, if, you, <laughs> you know? if, you, if, if it's not too proprietary, what idea did she come up with that's unique, that's different? 
from all her research that that you found to I don't know to be a one. cutting edge thing. Maybe. I don't know if there's one idea. She's just started this new new role, so uh-huh. you know we're right. we're feeling out what that is, and she's going to produce some white papers for us, and and she's going to interact with our uh, senior designers. Well, is there a so trend the she's beginning. chasing that, that's um, interesting? Particular ones? Yeah. What has she brought in that mm. makes it valuable for you to have her as that as that source? I don't know if I can, you know, there's not one right today because, as I said, she is just starting this new world mm-hmm. position. She did do a, a presentation to the firm not long ago about Gen Z. So well, that's interesting. That's interesting. It is very interesting because they're not millennials. No. And we, you know, we don't want to mix them up. <laughs> and so she brought to the to, to the firm and did through one of our town halls and what are some of Gen Z's propensities and how might that, you know, affect, affect what we What's do. What's the most so, stark one she brought out that's, that's different? They're very purpose-oriented. And so a lot of this, what you see, like what we're seeing with Ukraine today, that, you know, people want businesses to stand up and say where they, you know, where they are on this, right? And some businesses are doing that. And, that generation is very much more so than millennials, even because millennials are that um, way too, to some to extent. Some extent, they're now moving into their family, you know, years. So they're, you know, they're they're changing along the way a little bit, and they've lived through, you know, a pandemic. They're growing up in a pandemic. They're living in their their formative years, you know, in high school, trying to graduate from high school, thinking had to that, and, and not being able to be with their friends at the time when your peers are most important. So I don't know that we know what the outcome of that's going to be. Yeah. You know, they're going to be playing around in the, the, the metaverse and, you know, where are we going to go with that? Are they, you know, are they all going to communicate with people through their avatars or are they going to find that to be a false well, that's going to affect. Place it's going to affect not right? only design, but mm-hmm. your hiring and everything else too. Right? So I think you know some of that's yet to be sure. determined. But I think you know they're interested in their financial well-being. They want to be secure in a, in a volatile world. Yeah. Talk about leadership a little bit, Yolanda. What? Why were you attracted to having your own firm? Why be a leader? Uh, you know, you, you grew up as a as a sole, you know, as only child. Obviously, you had to make friends outside your family to collaborate. So, talk about leadership and what you how you define it. Well, I think you you brought up a, the maximizer trait, which of course, you know, I didn't know that until somebody told me that's what it was, right? So that plus plus strategic plus you know, what's that? I'm having my, my fingertips, but the one that made the driver, the driver in you. So. I lead by doing, I guess, as I would say. I never decided that I was going to run my own firm. I never decided I was going to be the chair of ULI. I never decided I was going to form an orchestra society. I never, (laughs) it's not like these were goals that I set out there and said, okay, now these are the steps I'm going to get there. What I do is I... Chase my passion. So what am I, what do I care about? What do I want to do? How do I want to change the world in some small way? And then I set out to do it and then people come to me. That's how it's happened. And I didn't really even realize that until, you know, until it happens <laughs> in a pattern, right? You look for the patterns. So when I first started, you know, went, went off to buy into this interior design firm, I was approached by my client right? To do that. So he saw something in me thinking that I would be good for that role. And then I went off and 
did that role. Right? I had met Mike early on, right? We talked about that. I kept in touch with him. Mm-hmm. Years later, you know, I had a project that we that I couldn't handle. That was architecture. I finally got to the point where we were going to do some architecture. And, mm-hmm. I went, you know, I asked him if he'd joint venture with me. The project never happened, but that started us talking. So, and in some ways, you know, he found me in way in a way. And we then, you know, worked out a way to be partners. And it's been a really great partnership ever since. So, I guess I concentrate on what it is I want to accomplish. And then I go do it. And then I grab who I can grab along with me to do it. <laughs> and then somehow I end up in charge. <laughs> so lead by, lead by example. Is the, yeah, is your, is but your I'm way. a doer. I'm in the trenches. I'm doing yeah. stuff. I've got projects all the time that right. I'm doing around here, around the office. Things that I care about or need to be done or whatever it is. So people that follow you, follow you because they see you doing something that they want to be inspired to do with themselves. Is well, that I hope so. I hope so. Yeah. <laughs> I do hope true yeah Yeah. i don't know how do you instill that that feeling of come on with me what you know bring it come on you know let's let's go passion is contagious okay so i don't know if you hear my voice or not but of course if you really believe in something then it comes from your heart right it comes from your being and that's you know unless you're a really quiet person it's pretty hard to to hide that right and so if people somehow feel themselves aligned with whatever that mm-hmm. is, whatever that, you know, that, uh, charge at hand, <laughs> you know, then, yep. then they will come along and hopefully, you know, they learn something in the process and then they can go do it themselves, you know, and, mm-hmm. and learn from that. I get a lot of young people ask me to be their mentor. That happens a lot. I, I do participate in a lot of mentorship programs, a lot of women, but not entirely. And that's, you know, that's pretty gratifying. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I interviewed Linda Rabbit for the podcast. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course, yeah. Her, her story is a fascinating Yep, certainly. And, and she uh, had an influence on me, too, early on. Yeah, I sought her out, you know, as one of the few, you know, very powerful and amazing women, in, you know, in the industry. And, yeah, it was, she was pretty funny. One of the first times we met, she said, Yolanda, you either need to find a bigger sandbox or build a bigger sandbox. And I'll never forget those words. That's cool. And she was she cool. was absolutely right. I mean, how did she know? I don't know. <laughs> well, she'd been there. <laughs> and so, you know, that's essentially what happened, I guess. You know, by merging, you know, my company with, with Mike's mm-hmm. company, it brought me back to the scale of work that I was more used, you know, used to doing from my youth and more suitable, I guess, to, to me. And, mm-hmm. you know, it worked. Well, we're going to shift to the final couple questions now. What advice would you give your 25-year-old self? <laughs> I wonder if I'd listen to myself if I did. <laughs> <laughs> Boy, I don't know. You know, that seems like so, that way, you know, I was 25, I was 24 when I went to New York. So I'm trying to, you know, put, put myself in that position and I'm in this new city in a new place, you know, working for this amazing firm. So it was all new and crazy and wild and, and fun at the time. So I was really more interested in, the, in just experiencing being in the moment, I guess. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Nobody but, was really giving me advice any then. So but looking I back, to myself? looking back at, at that time and if you were. I guess, can you define for yourself what it is you care about, why you want to 
be a designer or an architect? Why do you want to do that? What is what's what's behind that? What's driving that? I I don't know if I could have answered that at that moment, but you know the the better you can know what it is you want out of it or how you want to influence others or or change the world in your own way, then the, the sooner you'll be able to see the opportunities around you to, to, to do that. I think we'll circle back around to, to a lot of young people who want to know the path. They want to know, okay, if I do this and then I do this and then I do this and I check all these boxes, then I'm going to get here. That's just never been the way that I've run my life. And that just seems, I don't know. You might be missing something in that process, right? A lot of it has to do with opportunities that are in front of you that you have to kind of imagine yourself in that you wouldn't necessarily have gone after, but somebody's put it in front of you and you go, okay, well, maybe I could do that. And the other thing that I tell a lot of young people, and I guess I'd have to tell myself, is that no decision that you make today is your last decision. And people do, like when I left KCF to to go buy this small into this small interior design firm, I was just tortured, absolutely tortured by that decision. Torture everybody around me. <laughs> life is not life is not a sprint, it's a marathon. Yeah, and you know, if it hadn't worked out, I would have gone done something else. So, you know, it's hard to get people to think that yeah. you know, this decision is gonna, you know, mess up your entire career if you go try something new and different. So yeah. Great. Last question. If you could post a st- statement on a billboard in the Capitol oh. Beltway for millions to see, what would it say? Without deviation from the norm, progress is not possible. And that was said by Frank Zappa. So <laughs> <laughs> the quote that comes from that, you know, that that's that's longer and stuff came from George Bernard Shaw, and it's about the the unreasonable man tries to to form the world around the their view of the world rather than than accepting the world as it is so always wanting to be the world the world make the world as it should be rather than what it is i guess is is a way of of saying that and you know if you don't take chances or if you don't explore you just accept what is then nothing will ever change and so i'm always looking to change something (laughs) sounds like curiosity is the overall theme yeah well curiosity and it, it is back to a desire to to fix something, right? Or make something better. There is this seeking uh, solutions, I guess you might say, to okay. whatever problems are out there. I've, I've had this up on, you know, front of my desk for three years. Mm-hmm. So before we leave, anything else you'd like to share with my audience at all? Oh, my goodness. I would say, go do something you haven't done before. <laughs> <laughs> Right. I think the hard part about the real estate industry is that it's it's generally a conservative place. You know, there's a lot at stake. There's a lot, you know, there's risk, mm-hmm. there's risk in the money, there's risk in the structures, there's, you know, we all have to make a living along the way while we do this. And so there's, it's really hard to get people out of doing things the way they've always done it. And that's not just the design itself or the nature of the development, but, you know, how how it's contracted or how it's how it's paid for, or how it's built, or you know, all those things. We're in a trap right now with construction costs, availability of labor. We build buildings like 
custom designed piece by piece by piece, thousands and thousands of little pieces. And it's just crazy the way we go about designing and constructing buildings. So we have to break through this and find more efficient and better ways so we can spend more time on the beauty part. <laughs> Great. Yolanda, with that, thank you very much for your time. And I really appreciate it. It was a great interview. And I appreciate it. Thank, thank you, you very much. Well, thank you. It was fun. So we just listened to Yolanda Cole, founder, well, principal of Hickok Cole, who was brought on as a partner by Mike Hickok. And she actually, they actually met in Ray Ritchie's office, which was, <laughs> that was fantastic. Ray seems to pop up on many of our podcasts. So... As I usually do, I'm bringing in my colleague, Colin Madden, to give some commentary on our discussion. Welcome, Colin. Thanks, John. Good to be here again. I thought this was a, you know, an interesting and kind of a unique podcast with Yolanda. It was very enlightening to hear her career path, her trajectory, her kind of insights on the industry and where office is going and just just the thing from from like a music perspective, how how that shaped and influenced her career and, and her business going forward. Why don't we start from the beginning, or not totally at the beginning, but more like her her educational path, going from college and then deciding to get into architecture after mm -hmm. shifting from a, a music major. I wanted to get your your take on that. Yeah, it's, it, <laughs> you know, she knew from the get go when she was little, because her mother was a home ex teacher that she wanted to get into art, always had a fascination in art, making things and building and stuff. So she was into sculpture and jewelry and creating stuff as a kid. And then of course, music, her father was a mute owned a music store and she got a flute when she was seven years old from her dad. And that just, she fell in love with it and mm -hmm. just got really into it. And, you know, so much so she took her all the way to college and majored in flute and performance and teaching. She wanted to teach or she aspired to do it as a career. And then all of a sudden reality slapped her in the face as a senior college. <laughs> she realized there's a very, very few opportunities as a flute teacher and performer out there. So she just you know, she just decided, okay, now what do I do? And mm -hmm. so she says, okay, let's go get an architecture degree. <clears throat> so she finishes her undergraduate in music and then starts over again in architecture at the University of Cincinnati, which was an interesting program where they had a work, work school co-op program, which really helped. And she loved that. She got, was able to get involved in practice real quick which led her to New York City and working for Cohn Pedersen Fox and simultaneously going to school at Columbia, which is arguably one of the top five architectural schools in the nation. Mm -hmm. So she moved up very rapidly from a small town in Ohio to being with a leading architectural firm and been training it with the, at the best architectural school. So she, her trajectory was very rapid and high mm -hmm. quickly mm -hmm. in her life. Mm -hmm. And she felt honored to do what she did. So I think she's, you know, that was a, at a young age, she moved very quickly into, into really the top of the thing. And then she goes to Australia and builds a million plus square foot, you know, it's involved in a million plus square foot mixed use project over there. 
She said that was one of the most amazing experiences in her life. And so she comes back from that and she's got quite a resume and background in her first early part of her career. So she has the background now to do something special. Mm -hmm. So that I think is really cool. Yeah. And you can tell kind of throughout her career, she was just chasing a path. I, I picked up that it was like similar to a musician chasing the passion of music. I think she took that energy and passion and chased architecture the same way. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I, throughout the entire podcast, you could just tell she's super passionate about it. And it, and I think that's how she answered your question of how she leads. And she says she leads with passion. It actually reminded me of a quote that I have written in my office from Antoine de Saint-Exupéry. I, I, I never know how to say that, but he wrote The Little Prince. The Little Prince. Yeah, yes. which uh, one of my favorite, yes. favorite books. But I'll just read it. It says, if you want to build a ship, don't drum up the men and women to gather wood, divide the work and give orders. Instead, teach them to yearn for the vast and endless sea. Yep. So I, I feel like that's that's what I picked up, that kind of thread of chasing your passion and influencing others to do the same. So I think she she kind of was the perfect example of what that quote means. And it's just, it's not like ordering your your you know architects below you around telling them to do this X, Y, and Z. It's more just like chasing a mission and you can kind of tell Hickok, Hickok Hole chases a mission and the brand of Hickok Hole is very mission driven and it seems like people aren't just, you know, punching clocks and billing clients. It's, it's more they're exerting their influence on the built world. And I, I just picked up on that throughout the whole conversation and throughout her whole, her whole career and passion was, was such a integral piece of that. Do you, do you agree with that? <laughs> Not just passion, but inspiration. I think mm -hmm. what your quote really is an inspiring quote because mm -hmm. It's beyond the details. It's the big picture. It's the why. Mm -hmm. It's the it's the North Star. It's pointing mm -hmm. in a direction. We're going to get this done. And she leads. She's a mm -hmm. leader. She leads by example. And she talks about that. Uh, she's a doer. She also says she's the tough, the tough person in the partnership. Mm -hmm. She holds people accountable. She's, you know, she may be artistic. She likes crazy design and. You know, she fought back with me a little bit on the taste discussion that I had with her on that right. article. She said, you know, that's personal opinion. You can't, <laughs> you know, say that this is a tasteful project. Mm -hmm. She said, I, that, I, I pushed back on, she said, no, you can't. I said, well, now let's, let's think about that for a minute. I think, you know, when you see something that doesn't have any taste, right? In design, it's pretty clear. It's not tastefully done. And there are other things. It's like, wow, you know, and she talked about the, the build, the cathedral in Barcelona, that she mm -hmm. said, you walk in and over ornamented. It's just mm -hmm. almost dripping with ornamentation and it's a special property. Mm -hmm. And then she talked about this rock that has a hole in it and it, it has an elegance to it because of its simplicity. So anyway, it just, she has a do it type mentality and, you know, she's not as theoretical. I think she's just more practical in her thought process, I guess, is my reaction to that. Mm -hmm. and, yeah. and leadership. Definitely a good blend of practical and theoretical. I, I, I thought she, she was pivoting 
actually let's stay stay kind of with this theme you want to go into the agu building i feel like yeah uh, that's a good example of how hickok cole is mission driven and and kind of a trailblazer if you will that was a I think, as you said, a science experiment, more or less, in the type of project that might not pencil for a lot of circumstances, but I'm sure there's a lot of a wealth of knowledge that was gained by doing that project that, you know, you can then take pieces and put it into other buildings that might pencil in ways that otherwise no one would have known of. How often could you have a, a, a pure R&D experiment in a mm-hmm. physical office building of that scale mm-hmm. and that in that location? You know, you're in a real environment, downtown Washington, near DuPont Circle, and the building has 20 to 25 innovative. Some were not so innovative. They've been around, but not in combination like that. Mm -hmm. And that's what she talked about. There were certain synergies that they were trying to understand with regard to different elements of energy conservation Mm -hmm. that kind of work together. And so I asked her, what did you learn? And she said that that was the, the most interesting thing, which I thought was, you know, I hadn't heard that before. Yeah. This combination thing, which is interesting because standalone, each one of them are kind of cool and interesting, but you probably wouldn't do a standalone one of those things. Like, for instance, the heat exchange mm-hmm. that she talked about with the sewer system was a very unique. And that, that, that building that I saw in our tour was built in Germany. And I think there's one of three in the world like that. I mean, mm-hmm. that's it. Yeah. So, but interestingly, as she talked about the evolution of the LEED certification, you know, originally it was how much is this going to cost me, the developers say, to do mm-hmm. this? Mm-hmm. That was always the first question. Well, over time, that became the standard. So the question is will some of these technologies become the standard over time? Mm-hmm. I think she's right. I think she's on the right track with that thought process. And eventually, much of this will become standard or commonplace yeah. over time in in urban in urban buildings, potentially. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. But it, do, it just takes those, those trailblazing projects to gain that insight. It's almost like HEU is like a moon landing where they sh- showed it could be done. It might not have been economical or even close to economical if you're trying to make a decent return on the project but now we know it can be done what did we learn in that project how can exactly. we take it to, to other and now Hickok Cole is the expert on it so people are going to go to them so perhaps we can't get a true net zero energy building at at a lot of buildings in DC but there's progress to be made and you if you can't get true net zero energy you can at least get a portion of it so I'm glad stuff like that happens in in kind of the the real estate world where people are able to experiment and learn and kind of push, push the line forward. But yeah, I think a lot of the, what they learned will be become commonplace in, in 10 or 15 years. And, you know, well, I'm going to insert, I'm going to insert an advertisement a little bit for myself and our community, the iconic journey in CRE. I saw that building on an ULI mentorship program was as a mentor. mentor. I knew the progenier, before I'd met him and he said, sure, come on and look at it. Well, after seeing, after talking to Yolanda, I think I'd like to take the iconic journey through that building, our group. And for those of you that are listening that are not members of the iconic journey in CRE, we have a group of right now 36 young people, 22 to 40 years old that are members. And I'd like to increase that 
So if you're interested in joining, we're going to try and tour that building and several other very cool tours coming up, including Signal House, all of our cars project next mm-hmm. month in, in Noma. So I'll just stop there. And, but the AGU building, I think, is a unique structure that most professionals in real estate should be should see mm-hmm. just because of the cutting edge that are going on there from a sustainability standpoint. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and also a bit of a self-promotion, but Meridian has a net zero energy task force and we looked to AGU to see how we could implement some of those those mm-hmm. learn those learnings from that experiment to our building. And again, it's very hard to get a true hundred percent net zero energy building, but we found that we could do high net zero energy. Mm-hmm. So if if we mm-hmm. want to do certain spec suites that are true net zero energy um, mm-hmm. or certain floors, it can be done and we've kind of penciled it all out. So if anyone out there wants that, reach out to me because we have a few options in our portfolio where we could do that. Awesome. That's but cool. Enough self-promotion. I also, in addition to passion, I, I picked up a lot on her curiosity. And I always think curiosity is one of the most important characteristics in someone's career. And I actually was listening to a podcast, I think it was yesterday, Lex Friedman's podcast with Lee Cronin, who's a chemist. And he said, if your ego is bigger than your curiosity, then you cannot do science, period. And I thought that was you know, take out science and kind of replace it with anything. If your ego is bigger than your curiosity, then you can't do architecture development. Oh, or, yeah, absolutely. Um, and I think that 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 kind of phrase allows you to to get into the point of taking risks. And I think like something like the AGU building was a risk. If Hickok Cole was afraid of failure, afraid of like tarnishing their their reputation, then their ego may have gone in the way of their curiosity. And I think she kind of talked about a curiosity a lot and it seems like she's she places curiosity above her ego going in her in her career and wanted to get your uh, your thoughts on that yeah, absolutely if you agree yeah yeah well this iLab concept that they've done is tells me that you know they're spec specking money as a firm to do r&d internally on different concepts so she cites whole several examples of what they're doing, which I thought were fascinating. Mm-hmm. This wood, you know, this wood structure that they have at, I think it's 80 M Street Southeast, which is kind of a, I think we'll, we'll cite that. I'm going to have a picture of that on a link on the, on the show notes. Mm-hmm. But it's, you know, this timber, uh, mass timber. It's the first mass timber product in, in, in the city, apparently. Right. That's one experiment. She talks about virtual reality. She talks about, you know, this mixed use layering that she's talking about and how the integrating the spaces in this, this new system that they've created for the vertical movement of utilities within the building mm-hmm. is a patent she's working on. They're working on as a firm. I mean, if you're working on a patented process as a firm, that's cutting edge. That's yeah. curiosity. That's experimentation. Mm-hmm. That's trying to. That's trying to do something different that other firms are not doing. I think yeah. it's cool. Yeah, for sure. Very innovative. And you gotta you have to keep investing in R and D and innovation to I don't know, remain competitive in today's environment. I think there's so much competition and the world is so flat right now that innovation is key to basically staying alive, especially in such a design based industry where, you know. You're competing with a lot of very creative and intelligent people. Um, 
so staying ahead of the curve is, is very challenging, but very necessary. One of her biggest challenges is tr- trying to figure out the housing crisis right now. She talks about that at, at some length as well. Mm-hmm. Particularly, she you know somewhat personalizes it for employees. Architecture doesn't pay a lot mm-hmm. to employees. She talked a little bit about, so how do we get you know, quality housing inexpensively in, you know, in urban environments? And how do you do that? And can we do it architecturally? Well, I don't think you can completely. I think it's Mm -hmm. going to take a team to get that done. And, you know, the government has to be involved. Developers have to be involved. Financiers have to be involved. It's It's a tough effort. I'll bring in that I read that Amazon just invested through a fund that they created in Prince George's County. I don't know if you saw that, but that was an interesting thing where corporate tenants and owners, you know, are investing now in providing housing. Mm-hmm. And I don't think that was for the, just for their employees. I think that was a general community investment, which I thought mm-hmm. was interesting as well. Right, though. Yeah, it's definitely a challenge, not just locally, but nationwide and probably international. Getting affordable housing done and done in a way that makes sense for everyone. Yeah, what it tells me is she's not afraid of of what on the surface might seem impossible challenges. Mm -hmm. She's willing to jump in head first, which I think is bold and courageous. Yeah, yeah, and she quoted the George Bernard Shaw where... I'm going to butcher it, but basically don't, don't change your ways because the world is telling you to do so instead, like change the world, how you want it to look. Um, right. So I apologize for that, the butchering of that quote, but that's okay. Uh, it's close enough. But yeah. And you can tell that she kind of thinks, thinks about every decision and leading her company to do change the world that way. Mm-hmm. Yep. Well, else? that's, uh, yeah, I think we hit most, most of the topics I, I wanted to discuss. Did you want to hit anything I missed? Yeah, I, I'll just say that, the, the, you know, I, I brought the Taste for Makers article to her as I had with David Kitchens in an earlier episode because mm-hmm. I wanted to get to see if there was a contrast in their, rea- in their reactions. David's, David was very much more detailed about each perspective. Mm-hmm. She, she was a little more, she liked the article. She shared it with her senior team, she said. Mm-hmm. She thought his, his approach to the, to the thought process of taste was an interesting one. And, but she pushed back on it being not a black and white. It's very, very contextual, which I agree mm-hmm. with completely. But I thought it was uh, that article, and I hope everyone that's listening has a chance to read it. Because if you have any understanding or thought of an opinion about something that's made anything that's made create uh, he it it has different aspects of it that are that are really universal almost in the thought process so i, I just i'll just point that out as a an interesting thing it, it was one of the most provocative articles i've read over the last two years i have to say mm-hmm. so anyway i will say that and Anybody in architecture or creative in a creative role, I think, would have an interesting perspective on it, I think. So I'll say that. And also thank everyone for listening, and I appreciate it. Um, this was my second architect interview. I'm hoping to get more than that. I'd like to get a, another 
architect on sometime soon. If people have ideas or want to share them with me, write me at john at coenterprises.com. Let me know. And so we'll have another episode in, in two weeks. And thank you for listening. Have a great day.